Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick and Arisia and Woody Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, the irredeemable shag from firestormfan.com. Along with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, Mr. Rob Kelly from the AquamanShrine.com. Say hello, Rob. <laughs> I was waiting for you to give me your intro, and then there's just a pause. I'm like, am I supposed to talk? Okay, anyway, hello, everyone. Good morning. I'm very excited. We're getting, we're moving straight into the deeds as of uh, this episode, which is very exciting because there's lots of cool characters to talk about. Yes, I'm very excited, folks. This is volume six. That's V-I, for you Roman numerally challenged folks, of the Who's Who series. Uh, it was a 26-issue series, so we're actually almost to the quarter mark here we're almost quarter of the way through this can you believe that oh lord <laughs> well like, i started getting all kind of melancholy like this morning i'm like wow 20 almost 25 percent of this is behind us now it's like i missed it already i don't want it to be over i enjoy doing these so much let's see how you feel when we get to zoot sputnik <laughs> well folks for those of you who don't know this this series celebrated the 50th anniversary of dc comics and ran parallel to crisis on infinite earth in fact when this issue was on the stands, so was Crisis on Infinite Earth number five. So, and you'll you'll hear a couple of references to Crisis in this particular issue. It, as as uh, Rob said, it's an alphabetical listing. So this time we're going to be talking about the letter D. And uh, you know, let's just jump right in and start talking about the cover here. Uh, right. The, co- the yeah, I'm sorry. The uh, the cover is for the first time. The cover is not by George Perez. It's by Paris Collins with inks by Dick Giordano. And as you can see, the main figure. Of this cover, which is reason Shag is so excited, is Doctor Fate. Woohoo! The Ankh Avenger. Okay, I'm I'm the only one who really says that. I believe he calls himself that. Um, but yeah, Doctor Doctor Fate is the main character. I'm a little surprised actually because I thought it really could have been Darkseid. Darkseid is you know one of their biggest villains, but Doctor Fate is like probably right up there with him. So it, it, you know either one. Maybe they they tended not to pick villains as the main guy. So I could see why, and it was, it was like 50-50, you'd go with the hero. Well, it's, you know, you, you make a good point, because, you know, Dr. Fate was starring in All-Star Squadron in, in Infinity, Inc. at this point. Right. And Darkseid, you know, had the Superpowers series behind him and had another one on the way. So, I mean, it's a pretty big deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they said, they're, I, I, would, I mean, I think that's why, posing-wise, they're so close to one another. I mean, they're practically bumping each other, so. Um, this is a, yeah. I was going to say, I think Darkseid's about to feel Dr. Fate's butt, but anyway. I'm glad we paused for that. Uh, this is fun. <laughs> it's a really, really fun cover. As these covers are always fun. They're, there's, like, you know, they're a big jam. They're, they're the characters sort of being a little goofy and interacting with one another in, in ways we don't get to see. This one, I think by the nature of Perez Collins' work, which is certainly cartoonier than uh, George Perez's, it, this is even kind of a goofier cover. I mean, he, yes. I completely agree. This is the goofiest of the covers so far. Yeah. I mean, if you take a look around, um, you see, like, down at the very bottom, you see the deep six. 
those uh, those uh, George Kirby, uh, George Kirby, Jack Kirby villains. They're kind of waving hello. Uh, they're kind of <laughs> um, if you pan around behind Dark Destroyer on the back cover, you see Despero looking skeptically over Dark Dark Destroyer's uh, shoulder. There, um, if you go further up, you see standing on this giant stone edifice that the Wrecking Crew is uh, or the Demolition. What are they called? The Demolition De- Demolition Crew. Demolition De- team. Demolition Team. Demolition Team is uh, hitting, hitting with their tools. You see Despero standing there, and Despero is cooking a hot dog. Actually, it's uh, Desaad. What? Oh, I'm sorry, Desaad. Desaad is cooking a hot dog from the heat given off by Death Bolt. So <laughs> that's, that's the corniest bit right yeah. there, absolutely. Also, also Desaad is rocking a weird foreheads-high perspective. So <laughs> There's also, uh, like, the demolition team. Like, one of them sitting down eating a sandwich like he's, you know, yeah. on a work crew. Yeah. Um, you've got... It just it, it's silly is probably, it, but not in a bad way. Campy. No, it's not. Yeah, it's fine. Campy is the way to put yeah. it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Good lord, we don't take all this seriously. Um. I, I, <laughs> I I like how you've got the the military folks coming after the dinosaurs, which is representative of Dinosaur Island. Yeah. They're going after what they they think must be the head of the dinosaur, but it's actually the tail. Mm-hmm. And behind them, behind them, the dinosaur is like sneaking up behind them. Yes. Yeah. It's really cool. And you, you see that uh, the di- the dinosaur is being. Uh, uh, gingerly uh, stroked by Demonia, she's, she's admiring it. I was trying to figure out whether she was admiring the dinosaur or she's just like looking at all the deep six, going like, "Ooh, boy lizards." <laughs> I don't know. It seems like she's touching it. It seems like she's, you know, it like admiring be. its scales or something. And then, for some reason, Doctor Destiny seems to be cursing the heavens. He's got his fist up there. He's like waving. He's waving at somebody. I'm not exactly sure. Oh, I thought that was Skeletor. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, and then you've got over on the right-hand side, right under the logo, you've got uh, Destiny and uh, holding the Book of Destiny. And sitting on the Book of Destiny is Detective Chimp. <laughs> I like how it took me a while to figure out what, what Dr. Midnight was doing. Because uh, there's several characters who are riding down a light slide created by both Dr. Lights. It's got Dr. Alchemy, um, Dr. Bedlam, I think is his Dr. name. Dr. Bedlam, yeah. Yep, Dr. Bedlam, Dart, Death, uh, Death, Deadshot. Yeah. And Dr. Midnight. And Dr. Midnight is throwing something. And I couldn't figure out why he was throwing something at Dark Opal. Then I realized what's actually happening is his blackout bomb has gone behind Dark Opal and is poofed up right behind Dr. Phosphorus. Right. And, and Dr. Double X is climbing out of it. Right, right. Yeah, I said it's great. These are, these are always a lot of fun. It's a shame that um, they couldn't – DC couldn't put them out as like a giant poster or something because they wouldn't really work because they – the edges would wouldn't, wouldn't uh, don't match up or anything, but it would have been fun to see all these in one big shot, especially without the text on top of them, because they're 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 really a lot of fun. They really give a sense of like what this series is about, and you know, let's not take it all too terribly seriously and things like that. I think it's good. So the more I look at the double X, I, I kind of like that you've got Doctor Double X, and then coming out of him is like the Astral Double X, and then coming out of him is Dead Man. Dead Man. <laughs> so it's like you know, two spiritual beings coming out. That's kind of cool. So it's a fun cover. So uh, we're going to get into this in just a second. Inside, we're going to talk about the characters. And, again, if, you, if you're not familiar with the series, basically each page represents a character. You've got their name. You've got, they've got, like, a little logo. They've got a picture. They've got, you know, all their bio data. You get your, their names, their jobs, their marital status, known relatives, height, weight, all that kind of stuff. You get a big bulk of history, big bulk of powers and weapons. Behind them, and this is important for later, behind them are these little tiny yellow dots all the way around the edges of the page, around the border of the page. And, Rob, you're going to have to jump in and correct me here, but as I understand it, this was a Neil Posner's idea to show the printing process for creating colors. You start with a thick yellow pattern with little tiny white dots, and by the end, 
uh, the way it transitions at the bottom, you get white space with little tiny yellow dots. Yeah, as far as I always understood, it, it was meant to represent the dot matrix pattern that comic book coloring was printed, used for printing for, for almost all of its existence. It's not done that way anymore with computer coloring. But before that, everything, you know, all color that you saw in print was all made up of tiny little dots. So the, 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 that yellow border was sort of meant to represent that. Which is cool, because, I mean, this is a 50th anniversary celebration. Yeah, yeah it's, I think it's attractive. You know, in fact, uh, one of the things I didn't mention is, as I said, this is issue six. This is cover dated August 1985 and actually hit the shelves on Set Your Wayback Machine, folks, to May 23rd, 1985. And thank you, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, for that information. Yes. No ads in this thing, too. Man, could you imagine getting comics nowadays without advertisements? That'd be so nice. <laughs> so, and that's why I had the whopping $1 price tag. Woo, a dollar for a 32-page comic. Look out! <laughs> I'm sure there were a couple of series I stopped reading so I could keep affording to get who's who. <laughs> now, folks, our plan as we go through this, as always, is we're going to describe the, a little bit of the art, tell you a little about the history, just kind of goof on the, some of the weird, quirky stuff. So the, the goal is for you not to have to have the issue in front of you to see these pages, but if you have it, sit down, go through it with us. It'll be like story time. Or uh, go out to visit our Tumblr site. We're going to post eh, probably about 10, 10 pages, I would guess of the comic, the ones that we find more interesting or that we talk more about. We'll post those out on our Tumblr. And Rob, what's our Tumblr site? Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com There you go, folks. So be sure to check out there. Those pages will already be up by the time you hear this. So uh, we're going to jump right into this. We start off with a letters page, and the letters being answered by Len Wein. Uh, is it Len Wein or Len Wein? I Wein. Okay, Len Wein. And, you know, kind of... This shows you the nature of grumpy fans. You know, we joke about message boards. <laughs> I was going to say that. Who's yeah. Who letters pages were the, some of the grumpiest letters pages in all the comics. Well, we talk about, like, nowadays, you know, like, forums. No, you know, no one wants to go on forums because it's just a bunch of people, nerds yelling at each other. <laughs> That's what this is. I mean, you know, they're, they're all going, well, love who's who. But on page 52 of this mission, this character was wrong, you know, and basically about 75% of these letters, Len is sort of like shooting them down or, or <laughs> figuring out a no prize way around their errors. So I like that. Good on you, Len. Well done. So, but there are, as I said, there's some good letters here. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't going to focus on any particular ones unless you wanted to, Rob. No, uh, I mean, one of the, the common tone of these letters that was very funny is that when someone at DC made a mistake, now, look, you know, when you're talking about a series this huge, 20, as, as Shag mentioned, 26 issues, you're talking uh, 28 pages each issue. So however how many characters that is, think of all that information. You're going to have some mistakes. It's just going to happen. And a lot of the letters the, are, seem to take these mistakes very personally. You know, like, it's like <laughs> how dare you not mention that the Dr. Psycho of Earth 2 wore gloves. You're all idiots. You know, it's like... All right, I made a mistake. I'm like, calm down a little bit. So, you think about the amount of text they had to write for each one of these. I mean, I would say, like, for every two pages, you know, it's the same amount of words that were probably in an entire other comic book that month. Yeah, and this is so, pretty I mean, desktop publishing, too. This is a lot of stuff to do, yeah. yeah so, I mean, speaking of all the work behind it, let's go through the, the people who made it. Uh, we mentioned Len Wayne. Uh, it was writer-editor. Marv Wolfman was involved. Bob Greenberger. Peter Sanderson. Those were all contributing writers and editors and researchers. Then you get other uh, – here's the other contributing writers. Paul Levitz, Gary Cohn, E. Nelson Bridewell, Bob Roz Rozakis. Bob Rozakis. I, I, I can never say his name. He's the answer man, right? Yeah, the answer man. Okay. I'll just call him the answer man. <laughs> Todd Klein uh, helped with the production as well. And Len Wein uh, – why, why am I broken? Why can't I say that I man's know. name? I don't know. Len Wein. I know. Hey, Len Wein. 
Mr. Ween, I apologize. I don't know why I can't say your name. I'm terribly sorry. You'll have to come on the show and uh, tell me you know, how to say it right. Then we've got Len. We've got Tom Zucchio as colorist. Len, so Len helped color the book. That's interesting. And as always, our hat off to Brenda Pope, proofreader, <laughs> who had one of the hardest jobs at DC Comics that year. <laughs> yeah, whatever institution she's in, we hope she can hear this. <laughs> this one does have a pronunciation glossary. Uh, this ended right here, folks. This ended the debate that everyone had over the name Darkseid. Because, <laughs> you know, it used to be playground fistfights over whether it was Darkseid or Darkseed, regardless that the Super Friends had taught us it was Darkseid already. And this ended it right here, definitively Dark Side. So, get Dark Side, Demos, Demonia, Desad, Despero. You know, I'm doing this slowly, so I don't mess this up. Doctor Alchemy, Doctor Cyber. I like how they do Cyber because you know Cyber was so such a new word for people; they probably didn't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> Doctor Phosphorus and Doctor Polaris. So there we go. All right, our first entry. This is great. I love this first one here. It, it's the Daily Planet. So, you know, most of the entries are about people or maybe teams. There's a couple entries on places. This is, you know, I, I might be our first organization, really. I think it's the only, I think it might even be the only setting. I mean, you could argue, like, the other places you have, like, the Batcave, Challenger's Mountain, those are sort of, you know, part of the character in a Batman show. This is, like, the first sort of setting, I think, who's who, maybe the only one. Well, Atlantis had one. Oh, that's true. Oh, God. God. I'm messing the show up with a mistake right off the bat. Great. <laughs> Don't you – you know a thing or two about Aquaman, right? I just Maybe. forgot. <laughs> so what I like about this – I mean besides the fact it's great, but the, the very first thing you see at the very top, it's, it's not just says Daily Planet. The logo is actually the masthead of the newspaper, Yeah, that's which I think is so cool. Yeah, it's a nice touch. That's a really great idea. Daily Planet, a Galaxy Communications company. So this is pre-crisis, back when Daily Planet was owned by Galaxy you know, Communications, which is also GBS. So very much – this is the very tippy-tip end of the Bronze Age Daily Planet right here. And the entry is drawn by Kurt Swan and Al Williamson. It's a very nice entry. You get Clark. You get Lois. You get Jimmy. You get Perry White. And there's a bunch of other folks that I'm sure are supposed to be representative of Daily Planet staff back then that I just don't know because I don't know my Bronze Age that well. They talk about so many people on staff. It's crazy. Like they, they list all these different people. So the people in the drawing that I just mentioned, maybe these these folks, and I just don't recognize them. Like they go into details, talk about like the obituary editor. I mean, they get to that kind of level of detail. You know, Perry White's secretary, all this stuff. Who's the puzzle editor? Really? <laughs> so obviously, all this stuff is sort of culled from old issues of Action Comics and Adventures of Superman and World's Finest and all this different stuff. And someone took the time to sort of mill down all these people that worked at Daily Planet and all these wacky stories. Like, it starts off with a story about this poor kid that got killed by yeah, a, was, a paper roll. Was, when I read this as a kid, I was like, what? <laughs> so. Wait, you got to read that. You got to read that whole thing, Shag. You can't just. Okay. Gotta, the very first day of publication was marred by a tragedy when <laughs> Jeremiah Oditz, a teenage printing apprentice, also called a devil, was killed by a large roll of paper that fell on him. His ghost is said to guard the planet to this day and has saved the paper on at least one occasion. So clearly that's like, you know, some, a story from Action Comics or, you know, as I said, one of the Superman comics that Superman probably met that ghost or something, you know, and someone pulled that into this entry and it became, you know, fact. I would argue that that's the story from a month where Mort Weinziger had no ideas and had to have something done <laughs> for Julie Schwartz or something. So 
<laughs> That's funny. They go into like talk about where the GBS, what floor the GBS studios are on, what floor the Daily Planet's on. I mean, they they really go detailed here. This, this is a very impressive entry. So, and of course, the, the drawing's great. I mean, no one knows the Superman people better than Kurt Swan and Al Williamson. I have such a soft spot for Al Williamson. Oh, sure, sure. Oh, he's so good. Now, here's an interesting sort of like, and this has just got to be a mix-up. I was looking up a lot of these online. They list Murphy Anderson as the inker for this one instead of Al Williams, and even though his name is printed right here, so I wondered if perhaps it was a mistake. But that looking at the art, that's got to be Williams, and that's yeah, how yeah, 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 absolutely. So just hysterical, cracked me up. I do like. There's one other bit here. It says Clark, of course, also works as the TV anchorman on the WGBS six o'clock news. The 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 of course just cracks me up. He's <laughs> like, of course you. Dumb butt. He's an anchor. He's just slumming when he goes down to the Daily Planet, you know. So, anyway, it's a fun entry. I like it. I think it was a fun way to kick off the issue too. Well, they were sort of forced to by the alphabet. No, they could have <laughs> stuck in somebody like D A. Uh huh. Yeah. D da I don't know. <laughs> All right. Next entry is the Dark Circle by Dan Jurgens and Carl Kiesel. It's got this uh, great image of the dark circle characters in the foreground. You've got the five different sort of alien creatures, and then you've got their two cronies, one on each side, who wear sort of an all-black jumpsuit, even a black cowl. And they've got, you know, like a purple body, you know, uh, what do you call that, jerkin, I guess, or something, with a black circle on it, and they've got these big ray guns. And in uh, the background, which is a word that Rob made up and calls it serpent. Because the way this works is in the foreground, you've got your full-color picture. And in the background, you've got another drawing that is single-color. And typically, it shows you, you know, if it's a character, it's going to show you a close-up of the character's face, you know, without the mask. But in this case, it just shows you sort of the dark circle cowled imagery that you see from people from the dark circle. And you see a cool picture of a planet. It's really nicely done. And great it's an great awful- design, Pete. Jurgens really did a great job designing this. You know, I love the yeah. bar on the bar on the left-hand side and it. It fades down. It's really a beautifully composed page. It gives you a real sense for these are galactic-level characters. And they're evil, too, because you've got the cloaked figure and you've got the space. It just you really can tell by the name. True. <laughs> it's all kind of there in print, isn't it? But it's a well-done image. And by the way, I'm teasing Rob by saying the backgrounds of the Serpent because as when we get to the listener feedback, I think we may have to change some of our definitions, Rob. Uh, yes, I think we will. <laughs> now, Dan Jurgens drew this. A Dark Circle, by the way, were a group of Interplanetary conquerors, or would be, I should say, interplanetary conquerors. They're all, they're all would be. They're all would be, that's true, unless they succeed, who would battle the Legion of Superheroes. And at this time, Dan Jurgens was drawing Tales of the Legion of Superheroes, which made him an ideal choice to draw this picture. And the way it works is they're an interesting group. Um, there's five ruling guys, and then they have all these minions, and everyone thought they were like different races. Turns out, all the minions are just clones of these five guys. So you get, you know, the guy who looks like Cthulhu. You, you ever notice that, how much he looks like Cthulhu? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, yeah, he's a tentacle guy with a little squiggly mouth. thing. So, yeah. Yep. You get, like, the blue guy. You get the guy with the weird little head. And then you get Larflees. Apparently Larflees is part of the Dark Circle. Tell me I'm wrong. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. Exactly. So, and then you get the other big guy. So, anyway, it makes for an interesting group. And it just really cracked me up when I saw Larflees and Cthulhu working together. So I thought that was nice. So. Next up is the Dark Destroyer. Dun, 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 dun. He is the big bad 
from my soon-to-be favorite comic book, because sooner or later I'm going to buy this thing and read it, from Atari Force. And this drawing is by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. name. Yep. <laughs> this is a, Jose, Lu, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Does some amazing drawings. This one's just far and above, this man. This is killer. The pose is killer. Not just that, but the, the background, the serpent is just everything about it is amazing. So Dark Destroyer is this giant armored space baddie. You know, and this is an era, 1985, so you're not too far coming off of Star Wars where Darth Vader was kind of a badass. And so this guy is your sort of armored space, totally cool bad guy. He's got the giant boot, blue boots. He's got a purple bodysuit. He's got all kinds of bandoliers and some big giant gun coming on, hanging off underneath them. And he's got this horned helmet and his eye, just tiny little slits like a knight would have for his eyes. He just looks Awesome. The logo is great too. The logo is, I love the logo. I'm assuming the logo is by Todd Klein. It's, that's really a beautiful logo. Yeah, that's, I didn't notice that. How cool that is. Yeah, it's, it's sort of, uh, but almost like it's etched in wood and, mm-hmm. and it's, the, the letters are raised and like the S is actually almost like a bladed weapon and it's just very angular. Yep. Looks really cool. And it's even at an interesting, ang- tilted at an yeah, interesting. It's tilted down instead of tilted up. Yeah. Now I mentioned Cthulhu before. Uh, in the last one, this guy pretty much is Cthulhu. Like, if you read his history, seriously, he, he's like this giant entity, you know, tank, tentacled entity living in space. I mean, he's pretty, seriously, he's pretty much one of these elder gods. And he is forced to sort of take a human form. And, and this is worth mentioning because it's really a strange origin. I mean, what he does, he like, without going into all of it, he, he, he somehow like the main character from Atari Force, he takes that guy's son and the DNA and grows him to adulthood in a year and takes over that body. So it's it's sort of complicated, but there's there's children and clonage going on here. And he essentially ends up being a clone of the main good guy from Atari Force. Or I should say the former good guy from Atari Force. Like because Atari Force, when Atari Force starts, there's like the new Atari Force kids, and the old Atari Force is gone. So he's a clone of the old Atari Force guy, I guess. I haven't read it yet. I'll find out when I read it. Yeah, in the in the background, you've got him with the helmet off, and you can see the the face there of what's what is the guy's name? Martin Champion, I think. Yes, like Champion. Yes, Martin Champion. So he's he's got like a classic good guy face, but he's got sort of a maniacal look in his face. And he's holding the helmet there, and you see all the, the tentacled monster coming out of, like, a space warp. You see his armies of, of minions fighting the Atari force. Oh, it's just such good stuff. Very impressive. So, And base of operations, multiversal space. <laughs> good luck getting mail with that. Right, exactly. I think they have email there nowadays, I heard somewhere. So, Dark Opal is the next one, folks, by Ernie Cologne. He, he's from the Amethyst series. I love this drawing. Oh, it is beautiful. Ernie Cologne is a master. The design for Dark Opal is so interesting. He, he's got horizontal lines. He's, he's dark blue color. And he's got horizontal lines across his face. And they're really tightly done. Very creative imagery. I don't think I've ever seen another character like that. With that kind of skin before. He looks awesome. He's holding this black ebony, you know, um, I guess it's a Dark Opal. Dark Opal sword. <laughs> <laughs> he's got this screaming expression. He, he looks very, um, you know, sort of pomp and circumstance, sort of princely kind of character, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and, and he just, he looks so awesome. And in the background, in the serpent, you've got a nice image of Amethyst. You've got a close-up of his face. And you've got a close-up of his medallion, which has this, like, little angry face <laughs> in it. 
I, I had a chance to interview Gary Cohn and Dan Mishkin, and they said that was one of the things that Ernie Cologne was really uh, brought to the book, was that he drew little faces on everything so that it seemed like everything in general was alive. <laughs> That's great. And this became important here because his, his little amulet thing that they show, actually I think he ended up like being trapped in there. Like his essence was stuck inside that little clasp. So that's where he, he was forced to live. Uh, great series. Great drawing. Uh, really. Yeah, go ahead. And another, another entry with a really cool logo, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. Sort of uh, looks a little angular like it might be, you know, like a gemstone. Yeah, so. absolutely. Very cool stuff. Occupation, ruler of gem world deposed. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. <laughs> and uh, I find it interesting. The, the whole gem world stuff was interesting. I mean. Now, they're doing some of it now with the, the sword and sorcery book, but, you know, he's with the House of Opal and the Fortress Opal and just cool. And now it says the first appearance of the Legion of Superheroes, which will throw you if you're like, wait a minute. Now, turns out that was just the one of those little 16-page preview books inside. Right. Next entry is dun-dun-dun, Darkseed. Just kidding, folks. Darkseid. <laughs> Written by Len Wine. That's right. Uh, Jack Kirby and Greg Theakston did this, and we're going to see a lot of Jack Kirby in this issue, actually. Kirby is back in this issue, that's for sure, of Who's Who. So it's a, there's a lot of text in this one, so they actually didn't have a lot of room to work with for the photo, or the image. So you've got this kind of cool image in the front of Darkseid, and he looks very traditional New Gods, Darkseid. If a modern reader who was coming to this without knowledge of Jack Kirby's work on Darkseid would be like, what is that? Quite honestly. Because he doesn't look... He doesn't have the same awe-inspiring presence he does nowadays. I mean, he's still a big guy, and it's still a great Jack Kirby drawing, but it's just, he's, the character's evolved. There's a great shot in the Serpent. I love the shot of his face, where he's just sort of squinting with one eye, and he just looks maniacal and evil. And, uh, it's, oh, he just looks scary in that. And then there's one where he's doing his favorite pastime, which is blasting and disintegrating to sod. <laughs> Because, you know, everyone does it. It's like, oh, look, it's Tuesday. I'll disintegrate to side. They have so. a real pinky-in-the-brain type relationship. <laughs> and this history is a twisted – if you sit down and, and take the time to read it, it is a twisted, twisted, twisted soap opera of manipulation, backstabbing, terrible family tales. I'm sure everybody on Apocalypse were throwing drinks in each other's faces like soap operas. I mean, there's a lot of horrible things going on here, like – Darkseid falls in love with this woman. Darkseid's mom makes Desaad kill Darkseid's wife. So then Darkseid makes Desaad kill his own mother. And a, lots of crazy betrayal and backstabbing. And he, he makes his uncle, Steppenwolf, he sets him up as a patsy and takes a fall for him. And, and all the while, he's just building his own power base. See, now, so, I mean, this. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Not that I have the right to do this, but I'm officially going to pitch HBO a New God series, TV series. And my <laughs> my uh, my elevator pitch is it is is I'm going to say it's Star Wars meets Game of Thrones. Okay. How can All I right. turn that down? See, I, I keep I go back to like Dynasty and Dallas is what I think of. But like those, you know, uh, HBO executives aren't going to know what those things are. <laughs> so uh, really. Really great entry for Darkseid. Uh, very cool logo. I think this is not an original logo, though. I think this had been used before. Yeah, or it, yeah. If, if this was the first time it showed up, then it showed up many times afterwards, because I've certainly seen it. You used it on the Superpowers toy and stuff like that. <clears throat> I, I, okay. I actually think Darkseid probably should have gotten two pages. I think he's I, – I, This is I, to me, this is a less than inspiring Jack Kirby piece, because Darkseid's just standing there. He's such a huge villain. I think he deserved 
two pages. But, you know. That's true. I mean, I could totally see that. That would make sense. And it, given the amount of text that they had to cram in here, yeah, yeah. that would have been nice. Next one, a very sexy drawing by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, of Dart from Atari Force. And you know what's the number one thing that jumped out at me in this drawing? Uh, the fact that Dart is nude at the bottom? You know what the number two thing that jumped out at me in this drawing is? <laughs> that on her left lapel, on her sh- left shoulder blade, there's actually an Atari symbol. Yes, yeah. I didn't know that. Like, again, I am Atari Force illiterate, other than the ads and what we've read so far in Who's Who. So I didn't know they actually acknowledged Atari, like the real Atari. So there is the Atari symbol for, like, the Atari 2600. Bloop. Right there. Bloop. Bloop. What was that? It's the sound Atari games made. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, really, again, a very impressive drawing. Now, Rob, you're an artist here. Maybe you can tell me. It, you've got this. Well, I'll just start. Well, they, they've got a foreground drawing of Dart. She's a really cute, white-haired girl. She's got her hair up in a po- high ponytail. She's got this gun. She looks totally sort of almost, almost Cable, you know, Cable from X-Force. Almost dressed like Cable, except her proportions are correct. <laughs> Because she's got knee pads and shoulder pads and guns and holsters and belts and pouches and I guess those are leg warmers. Uh, just lots of different stuff going on. So she looks almost like a, a cute in proportion, you know, female cable. Because <laughs> she even got like a thing around her eye. It's actually a tattoo around her eye, but, you know, sort of not too different from cables. And she's got uh, a dot in the center of her forehead. So uh, in the background, though, is, is a great series of drawings. You see Dart in one, two, three, four, five different images of Dart. One's a close-up of her face. The rest of her are in action. One, she's, like, got her gun. Another, she's swinging in and kicking someone. Next one, she's in martial arts. Next one, she's as naked as a jaybird with her boyfriend eating fruit. <laughs> so what I was going to ask, though, is, like, there's really nice shading back there. Is that some sort of textured shading thing that like, yeah. do it or whatever? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's, uh, you know, I don't exactly know what texture he's, he probably he might have used a board that had the texture pre-printed on it um, mm. to, to get that effect, because there are boards that had different, different, but, I, but I'm not exactly sure. To, but yeah, I know what you mean, there's like a rough, almost like it's a, um, oh, what's the, like chart, not charcoal, but it, almost that kind of a pastel kind of effect in, in some of the spots there. You know, it does. Charcoal's a good way to say it. It almost looks charcoal-esque the way it is, but it's clearly a pattern, like you said. It's a, they, they rubbed a, some sort of pattern on there. Yeah. So, and, and the nude picture, really, the, for the purpose of, besides being a little provocative, is that the left-hand side of her body completely is tattooed. And so that's kind of showing you from her back and sort of a side boob shot, you can see all the swirly tattoos she's got on her back there. Yeah, she and the, the other guy, Dart, I think it was, they had a real green arrow. Well, she's black she's, dar- I, she's Dart. She's Dart. Not Dart, of course. Blackjack. Blackjack. She, I meant to say that. She and Blackjack had a real green arrow, black canary type relationship. Was he screwing around with every, every other woman on the entire <laughs> force? He had that kind of persona, I believe. He's sleeping with that big-eared weird thing? <laughs> Looks like a little, like a giant human-sized rat or something, so... We haven't got to that entry yet, so yeah. I don't know who that character is. So. so that's Dart. Very cool. It's sort of a sexy picture. And, again, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, does an excellent job on that picture. Really represented the Atari 4 series quite well. Every time, you know, if you didn't know the book, every time you saw the, the character, you'd be like, wow, this is a really neat-looking book. Which is why I'm going to pick them up. Right. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully by the next time we do a Who's Who issue, I'll be able to say, yes, I own them. Now, whether I will have read them by then, that's a whole other story. Then we've got, next up, we've got Dawnstar by James Sherman, and it's a really nice drawing. It's a simple drawing, 
but it's a very nice drawing. I really like his line work. Uh, he's very thick lines on his drawings, especially around like the, the like the interior in lines are are thin, but all the exterior lines around the character are very thick, and I think it makes for a nice appearance. It has Dawnstar sort of flying down, like she's setting down from flying above and about to set, set foot on the ground. And those of you who aren't familiar with Dawnstar, she's a character from Legion of Superheroes, and she's a winged character, sort of like Angel from the X-Men, and she's Native American. So she's got a lot of Native American sort of look to her, like she's, her skinny little tiny bathing suit costume has lots of little tassely things that, you know, sort of attributed with Native Americans. That it's under her arms, on her boots, things like that. In the background, you've got a picture, a, a very close-up image of her face, beautiful woman, and then you've got one with her flying through space with what appears to be Aquaman's boop, 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 power, but really it's a tracking power, I think. And then I assume the bottom left-hand corner must be her parents? I would assume so, because her parents are Moonwalker and Mist Rider. They look like that's the, those people would be named that. Yes, I would go with that as well. Now, she is a mutant from Amerind, which you know sort of makes me think, like, it's sort of America. It's kind of, you know, so you're kind of going for Native America sort of thing. So I think that's why they call that. Anyway. And she's a member of the Legion of Superheroes, and she was a very popular member of the Legion of Superheroes. She had a thing with Wildfire for a long time. Now, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Legion. We know Rob hates the Legion. I mean, he just <laughs> hates it with a passion of a thousand burning suns. And I, I never got into this character. And maybe it's because the era I read Legion, you know, I, I became really active in Legion during the five years later period with Keith Giffen. And, she, and Dawnstar wasn't a big part of that era. And maybe that's why I just never connected with the character. I never read the Paul Levitt's earlier stuff that's supposed to be amazing. So maybe if I had, I'd, I'd feel more for her. I mean, she's certainly uh, a beautiful woman. And uh, just for you, Hector, she's hot. I knew and that was coming. Co- contractually, I have to at least describe one woman as hot every issue per Hector and I's contract. So. Per episode. Per episode. Right. Thank you. So anyway, it, it, it's a good entry. It's very representative. And Legion was huge business at this point. You know, in hindsight... Um, she could have been one of the cover characters. Because Legion... I think that's pushing it. Legion of Superheroes and New Teen Titans were two of their hottest that, ongoing that's books. That's true. That's true. So, and she was a big part of that, probably because of the way she dressed. But, anyway. Now, okay, here's a bit where I, I gotta admit, I, I haven't done my research on this particular one. James Sherman, um, I, I don't know him. He used to draw the Legion of Superheroes. Did he? Okay. Yeah, in the 70s, I believe. I, I'm not familiar with his work at all, really. So, Next entry is Dead Man. Man, this issue is chock full of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, drawings. <laughs> uh, like, you know, last time, the last issue we did was just full of Jerry Ordway stuff. You know, I guess this is Jose's issue. So, And, and another ridiculously good drawing. I mean, it, it, it tells you everything about Dead Man you need to know. You've got the backup characters, close-up of him. You've got a, a, a glimpse of the origin. You've got a glimpse of his powers. Everything. It's just... Uh. It's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you even get a shot of him without his mask, which you, which I had never seen until brightest day, what he looked like without his mask before. You see him going in, yeah, taking over somebody's body as well, and, and as Rob said, the origins there, the circus characters. It's just... It's great. You know, it, it even looks a little Neil Adams-ish. Like the foreground image to me. Hmm. Which, you know, Neil Adams was well-known for doing Deadman at the time, so. Now, Deadman is a character that I've never really clicked on. So you hate like, him. You, what you're saying is you hate him with the intensity of a thousand white-hot suns. <laughs> Somebody a little sore about my Legion comment, maybe? <laughs> just trying to show you how ridiculous it is. <laughs> no, I, 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 it's not that I hate him at all. I just, 
I haven't read a lot of stories that I really gelled on, and I've tried. I've bought quite a few Dark Dead Man comics over the years. So, by the way, I have to mention this. Okay, his his real name is Boston Brand, and quite often he gets called Boston Brand rather than Dead Man. I never knew this till I, I read this entry closely. He has a twin brother named Cleveland. Cleveland Brand, which cracks me up. <laughs> Does he have another, like a, uh, like a, a cousin named Poughkeepsie Brand? <laughs> the rarely mentioned Toledo Brand. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, that cracked me up. So, uh, really, if you don't know much about Dead Man, like you've probably seen him, you know, in comics and stuff like that, because he's around, certainly. But you may not know a lot about him. There's a lot of Eastern mythology kind of going on with his character. There's a, there's a deity called Rama Kushna, which sounds a lot like Hare Krishna. Uh, you know, it's it, uh, an uh, Eastern sort of mythical god that controls his destiny and his fate, and he's trying to balance the books of good and evil and all this stuff. And he's always going to Tibet. He, he keeps getting tied back to Tibet as well. So, I mean, it's a very um, worldly sort of character. You know, he's not as straightforward of a superhero character as you would think. Oh, yeah, no, he definitely comes in the roots of the Eastern mysticism stuff, which was particularly big in the late 60s, which is when Deadman was created. All right, next up we have our first two-page, or I'm sorry, one-page split entry. So we've got on the top half of the page, we've got Deadshot. On the bottom half, we have Deathbolt. So we're talking about Deadshot first. Deadshot is drawn by the amazing Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. Now, Marshall Rogers is really good at drawing, like, I don't know if I want to say schematics. Is that really the right word to say? Well, no, that's a good word. That's a, that's a schematic okay. of what it is of his arm holster there. Yeah, of his, his arm wrist blaster thing. Is it, it shows the cartridges, the televisions. Television. I think he meant telescopic, but <laughs> television scope, silencer chambers, the trigger of how his, his wrist gauntlets work that fire bullets. And this is Deadshot as he was re-created. Because originally he was just a silly guy in a top hat. He looks like Abraham Lincoln shooting, shooting things oh. up back there. <laughs> Floyd Lawton was, yeah. And he's actually been around a long time. His first appearance was in Batman number 59. Yeah, that's, I know. I think when I was a kid and I read that, I was like, wow. You know, like, I knew that that was the 40s. I was like, I had no idea he'd been around that long. And it's interesting that, I mean, he he was around back then, but then he sort of like, you know, obviously he disappeared for like a long time. You know, I'm, I'm actually sort of looking here. Where is it? Yeah, he, he appeared in 1950 one time, then 1977 Ooh. one time. One time, then in nineteen eighty two, and then sort of like from then on, he was around. Oh, now he's kind of a big deal, you know. He oh yeah, he's like a huge, big, Batman, big Batman villain. Yeah. In fact, it was like one issue away, or not one miniseries away from this, he became a, you know part of the Suicide Squad, and that's really where he exploded. So, uh, you know, right after Crisis, the next big miniseries was Legends, which led to Suicide Squad, and that's where he really became big. And I, I always loved this entry, even before Suicide Squad. I thought he looked so cool. I mean, this is so 80s, but he just looks awesome. He's got, you know, that one eye that's like a telescopic, a telescopic eye. He's got lots of, like, what appears to be, like, metal. I mean, you guys have seen Dead Shot before. You know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> I don't have to describe Why it. are we even doing this podcast? He just, I mean, the red and the silver contrast really well, and in, in the full hood with the one eye. And Now, at this point, he did not have the death wish that he became well-known for. He was just known as, like, a crack shot. And he was, you know, that was his stick. He was just an, an inhumanly accurate marksman. So, and, it, and I was wondering, I'm reading through this real quickly to see, it doesn't say anything in here about how he has a hard time shooting Batman, because that becomes a thing later. Like, for some reason... The world's best marksman can never shoot Batman for some reason. Like, it's a psychological block or something. No, no mention of that at this point. So I guess that came about during Suicide Squad. 
But anyway, really great drawing. Love Marshall Roger, Rogers' little schematic there of the wrist gauntlets. Then the next one on the same page, as I mentioned, is Death Bolt by, here's your here's here's moment of zen, Jerry Ordway, folks. Hey. Oh, gorgeous. This guy just is so good. It's a tiny little picture, too. I mean, it's, I don't know, what is that, four inches big? It's tiny. And it's even like a ridiculous character, you know. <laughs> he, it, it names Jake Simmons, and he's Death Bolt. And he was created for All-Star Squadron, so it's not like he's a real classic 1940s villain. But, man, he looks like it. They really did a good job. I mean, if I didn't know better, I would have assumed he was a 1940s villain they brought back. Simple green leotard with purple briefs and purple boots, cape and gloves, and, and cowl with a green, I like the green, like, jagged fin he's got. That hey, cracks so me I up. thought it was parsley or something on top of it. <laughs> and he's got, you know, he, you know, of course, he's tied in with the ultra-humanite, as they all are. And he's got, you know, electricity powers. But just a really solid drawing from Jerry Ordway. And, uh, you know, it's... Makes me want to go read my All Star Squadron right now. <laughs> I think I say that every episode. Yes, I because, do. Yeah, I think you because do. Jerry Ordway's that good. <laughs> Next up, Mr. Jack the King Kirby is back. Him and Greg Theakston cover the Deep Six. And this is, I, I really like this entry because it's, first of all, it's huge. <laughs> it takes up, what is this, like three quarters of the page. You've got along the left hand side, you've got the six different faces of the characters. My favorite part. Uh-oh. Dark up. side screaming yeah. at them. <laughs> well, the way he's leaning into the page, it's just he's photobombing the deep six. <laughs> he's totally doing that. You're absolutely right. You can see his teeth. It's like, it's like <laughs> damn you, dark side. We're trying to take a family picture. Cut it out. <laughs> so, and these guys are really cool looking. I mean, they're these are the the, the aqua troopers, if you will, of of apocalypse. You've got. Gold, Jafar, Shalgo, Slig, Trock, and Curran. They just roll right off the tongue. Slig. That just tells you everything you need to know about him. Exactly. Well, I like him because his helmet comes down really low. Like, you can't even see his eyes. I think that cracks, that cracks me up. And they all sort of look lizardy, froggy, sort of in appearance. They look like creatures of the Black Lagoon in different yeah. ways. In clothes. Yeah, in clothes. <laughs> right, in, in Jack Kirby clothes. So. Right, exactly, with weapons, too. So, and uh, there's not a lot to say about him here. I guess they'd only appeared a couple times, or, or once maybe even at this point. But they, you know, they're, they're the water team. They came in, they, they fought on Earth, they attacked Earth a couple, you know, at least once, and were defeated by Orion. So, now I'm wondering, the Deep Six have come back a lot. How often have they fought Aquaman? I was, you know, it's funny, I was just thinking as you were talking. Uh, not much, but they have. They have, they were used in the... 90s series and they were Peter Davids. the Peter David series and they were brought in there and they fought them and there's a great issue that has a cover by Mike Mignola that has him Aquaman versus the Deep Six because yeah if they were not a team that was so locked into Apocalypse they would be a natural foe for him and honestly I mean they they probably should still be you know and, right. and especially you can't get off of Apocalypse at a moment's notice so well especially with the the new 52 being right. so deeply rooted in Apocalypse right. it would just make perfect sense for Aquaman to meet these guys yep I agree Jeff Johns, get on that. I love Curran, like the one of the yellow. I just you look at the little gladiators, sort of like they're all, they're all great. They would have made great toys. I have to think that you know, <sighs> if the superpowers line had kept going, we would have gotten to these guys eventually. You know, they honestly they look like He-Man villains. Yeah, they do. They do. They really do. They so I could just see them in like the He-Man proportions, like mm-hmm. that'd be, oh, that'd have been nice. So all right, next picture, next page, we get a really nice drawing of Demos. By Mike Grell, and this is a warlord villain. And uh, I'm just gonna say it. 
All right. Anybody else that draws this character except for Mike Grell, it looks like a gender bender sort of thing. Because <laughs> that costume, he is rocking a girl's outfit. He's rocking a Vampirella outfit. For, for, those I mean, of you, for those of you who can't see it, and I don't know if we'll post this, maybe we should. It looks like Anton LaVey if he dressed like Vampirella. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, very good summation. So he's got, he's rocking the, the belly showing. <laughs> he's got you know, six the, pack abs. The, the clasp is coming up over where his nipples are. I mean, he's, he's, he's wearing girls' clothes. I mean, that is what it is. In fact, if you look on the cover, the Paris Cullens cover, if you flip it over, it looks like a gender bender thing. It just looks like, you know, it looks like in the, on the cover here, Freddie Mercury is wearing, you know, girls' clothes on the cover is what it looks like. Because when, when anyone else other than Mike Grell draws him, it doesn't work. Most, Mike Grell, when Mike Grell draws him, it works. Most of Mike Grell's characters are very scantily clad when you think well, about it. Well, Scartaris is it's a hot place. Right, I'm just saying, it's, that's, and they all dress like this. Uh, the one little detail that is nice, which wasn't done a lot, is you see that the Serpent is actually going over the main image. Oh, see, yeah. The, 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 the energy from his uh, neti pot there is going over uh, his arm, which is nice. And they, so, you know, it's, it, that's a nice little, giving it a little sense of depth. I thought that was a nice that's touch. pretty cool. I like that. Yep. And you see the giant scar he has across his face. Yep. Now, here's, here's sort of interesting. We talked about the Dark Destroyer before. That's why I kind of focused on the whole infants and clone thing. Same sort of thing here. Demos takes Travis Morgan's kid. Uh, clones that child, grows it to adulthood, and then makes Warlord fight him. And um, hey, just there's a lot of cloning kids and growing them to adulthood kind of thing going on here. It's a theme in this issue. It's a theme. Now, Demos is uh, he dies. Like if you read his entry, he dies a lot. I mean, this guy dies more than Kenny on South. Yeah, I was about to say, oh my God, you killed Demos, you bastard. <laughs> um, and, and you know. It, Interestingly enough, as much as a character we're make, making fun of, he had an action figure long before most he other did. DC characters. He did. You could buy him a Remco, folks. Yes, I think I had it too. Did you really? Well, I, you know? I had Warlord and I had Hercules and I had Arak. I don't know if I had Demos, but I, I seem I, to remember having. Might have confused you growing up. So, <laughs> explain a few things. Confused about nothing. <laughs> So, um, but this this one's a good balance of you get a very large image, but you also get a lot of text. Yeah, they, yes, that's true. They balance it quite well. You get a lot of information about the character, and it is—I mean—it's written very compact. I mean, when you read it, there's a lot explained in there. So, and he's a first appeared in first issue special. So, is, did Warlord first appear in first issue special? Yes, Warlord was given a test run in that book, and then they spun him. Ah, okay, I didn't realize that. Yep. Next up is. Definitely one of the goofier groups of of the book, the Demolition Team, and I got to assume they were supposed to be goofy from the start. I mean, they had to have. There's no way that they could be that serious of villains, uh, especially being they were created like in the 80s, you know, late 70s or 80s. Um, it's the Demolition Team, and they are essentially uh, souped-up construction workers. <laughs> You've got Rosie. Take a wild guess what she shoots, folks. That's right. Rivets. <laughs> You've got Hard Hat, who, guess what he's wearing? That's right. A giant sort of headpiece thing. <laughs> You've got Jackhammer. Not even going to bother. Scoop Shovel actually has this giant, like, he has his real arm under there, but it's like, you know, some sort of appendage on top <laughs> of mechanical, surprising scoop. And then Steamroller actually rides a giant steamroller. 
I do like that they took the effort on Rosie to draw that not only she got the rivet shooting gun, she has a giant bucket of rivets hanging off for Rachel. Great. And this is by, you know, Dave Gibbons. You know, you, you look here, the same year he's drawing Watchmen. <laughs> he's over here drawing this ridiculous group called the Demolition well, Team. I mean, he drew Green Lantern, so it made sense. Yeah, exactly. He drew Green Lanterns, which is why he did this. And it's, it's, just, it's very – and even the entry – okay. I'm, I'll finish any one of those sentences in a second. The the entry itself is very strange. Like, <laughs> they're a highly skilled team of professional mercenaries outfitted with the latest high-tech equipment. Um, and it talks about, you know, the demolition team. It, it starts by saying, though nothing is known of the background of the various demolition team members or how they first joined forces. And then it goes on to tell you their background. <laughs> It says nothing is known. But then it says Rosie. She's a tough-talking New Orleans bar owner. <laughs> Scoop Shovel, this is my favorite, is a top-level high player from San Diego. high just cracks me up. Uh, in a high-level, top-level right. high player. So him and Fastball from the Cadre, I mean, put those two together. That's a good idea. Boy, that's, I didn't even think about that. You're right. Jackhammer is a Houston oil wildcatter. You got a stunt cyclist, a steamroller, and Hard Hat. Um, okay, I have to read Hard Hat's description here. It says Hard Hat is a punch drunk New York boxer whose power pack helmet and harness turn him into a living juggernaut. juggernaut. And guess who he looks like, folks? <laughs> juggernaut from X Men. So there's it's. I w- I hope that the issues of Green Lantern that these guys appeared in were a real hoot. <laughs> I get the sense that they were just from this entry. I really hope they didn't go for seriousness when these characters appeared because they're just silly fun. How how DC and Marvel never did a crossover book with Demolition Team and the Wrecking Crew, I don't know. (laughs) Well, I I think it would be fun, too, to have the Demolition Team come in and the Damage Control come in. in After them, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. They they work together, you know? So Uh, Next up, we have got The Demon. Yes, folks, we're talking about Etchigan here by Jack Kirby and Terry Austin. This whole book was drawn by either Jack Kirby or Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. <laughs> well, he's paired, instead of Theakson, he's paired, he's paired with Austin this time. And as I think you said in the last one, no one has ever said, oh, Terry Austin really ruined that drawing. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's never been said before. <laughs> Terry Austin's amazing. So um, I will say, and, you know, and this, this is a bit of sacrilege probably for Kirby purists, I will say that there are a handful of characters that got better artistically after they left Jack Kirby's hands. And I would say Etchigan the Demon is one of them. I would say once he got into the hands of other artists, he really developed into, a, I think, a much more interesting-looking character. I'm not saying this is a bad drawing. I just think, like, if you look at the cover, if you look at Paris Cullen's version of, of Etchigan, I find that a much more compelling Etrigan than the one inside this page. Okay. I know. I'm going – all the Jack Kirby fans hate me now. I'm sorry. I let you guys down. But come on. Look at him. Look at his face. He looks like a regular guy with yeah, horns and ears. No, yeah, I, okay. I, I understand what you're saying. I think what it is is that Jack Kirby's demon is a thoroughly unmysterious character. And he's trying to go for that. He's not trying to make him mysterious. Everyone else after him has made him mysterious looking, which – you could argue is a good way to do it, but it just—I just think it's very two distinct takes. Like when Stephen Bissett drew him in Swamp mm-hmm. Thing, he made him really creepy and mysterious looking. Kirby was not going for that. Kirby was going for a more mythological King Arthur type character. So 
they're just it's it's two different approaches for the same character. And that's fair. Yeah. 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 And and I'm not I'm not saying that other people's is better because I mean Kirby Kirby gave the character to us. There would be no later interpretation without Kirby's interpretation. And that was always creation. his intention too. Yeah. Was to create all these characters and then hand them off to people. I, I guess for me, like when I think of the demon, I either think of the one um, who drew the demon in the Alan Grant series. Who did that? The that Alan was, uh, Grant series. I forget. Jeez, uh, was that Sean McManus? Maybe. I don't think so. I, well, I have a pretty good Etrigan by Sean McManus in my head. Anyway, that one, the Paris Collins versions, those are kind of the demons I think of. So. There was a there was a demon miniseries by Matt Wagner that was really yes, that was pretty impressive too. Yeah, yeah. So I like I like uh, it talks about Jason Blood here. I like his occupation is demonologist. demonologist. So I bet that's great at Christmas parties. You know, what do you do? Oh, I'm a demonologist. Oh, wow, great. Would you like some eggnog? So, and uh, I also like his known relatives, the demons of hell. And all of those are in capitals. So Don't we all <laughs> feel that way? <laughs> Sometimes we do, especially around the yeah, especially exactly. around, the, especially around the holidays. We all feel that way. <laughs> so it, it lays out again. Here's a really another very fascinating soap opera like maybe not soap opera, very mythological though uh, origin of a character for the demon. A lot of you know back and forth with Jason Blood and Etrigan and, and uh, Jack Kirby really created very deep, dense characters. When he created his fourth world stuff, and I don't know if the demon technically falls into fourth world. I guess it doesn't. No. It was, but it was it wasn't too far off that time period when he was creating all this stuff for DC, and uh, it's really just a really really great solid character. Next up, we've got. All right, I'm, I'm going to go to the pronunciation key for this one, folks. Demonia. This is by Mike Hernandez and Romeo Tengal, and this is a villain from Green Lantern. She's essentially a no, snake. No, no, well, no, sort of. She's a, one of the Omega Men. And the Omega Men oh, first appeared in Green Lantern, but she's, that's she's right. not a she, yeah, she's a Omega Men character. Thank you, I, I appreciate. It. I completely I read the entry and I forgot that piece. Yes, yeah, she's an Omega Men character. So uh, it's Mike Hernandez and Romeo Tengal who have drawn this. Uh, her real name, her alter ego, looks like somebody lost a game of Scrabble. Can't even begin to pronounce that. Now you're our Omega Men guy. You know I'm going to have to rely on you. Like this entry was really not that inspiring for me. Okay. Like, I read it. I mean, the art's pretty. She, she's very much a snake lady. She's got, like, a snake headpiece. She's got an orange bodysuit. And she's got sort of clawed feet and clawed hands. And there's some interesting stuff in the background where there's lots of creatures and... and Morphs, morphing into a creature, yes. Yeah. And, and some nice line design work. I really like the line inch and stuff. But as I read her entry, she just seemed like sort of a... Not a very pleasant person. Well, no. I mean, she was a good guy that turned into a bad guy over the course of the series, which is, again, one of the things I loved about that book was that there was no status quo in that series, much like mm-hmm. we've, even though we've sort of bemoaned that over uh, over at the regular show, over about Firestorm. Um, <laughs> that's something I liked about the Omega Men is there was no constant. The Omega Men was constantly changing. And um, uh, I said there was no constant, and they just said they were constantly. Uh, but she was a, a she was one of the Omega Men that eventually turned bad. And got killed by one of the other Mega Men when it turned out that her betrayal was uh, revealed in a pretty particularly nasty uh, final scene too. So uh, it was cool. I, I there's a I don't know if they needed to go into this much depth in her history. To be honest, she hadn't been around all that long. But uh, but but it, it, she was not one of my favorite characters. But she served a purpose in that you know you didn't really see too many super teams where one of the good guys turned bad and then stayed bad. That generally didn't happen. Yeah, usually it's the other way around. Usually you end up with a bad guy who becomes a hero. Right, right. And, and, and you know, I think you make a good point. This probably would have made a good half-page entry. Yeah. So. Next up, Desaad. I love this pose. 
<laughs> I feel like he's doing like a vaudeville thing. He's like da 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 da. da. Uh, he does sort of have jazz hands out, sort of. <laughs> but he's reaching for you, is what he's doing. He's reaching for you, the reader. He's got you know his his left hand is up in the air, like he's going to swat you, and his right hand is actually reaching at you. And he's got the like rah, sort of look on his face. And, and this is another Jack Kirby, Greg Thigson picture. Uh, really great one. And uh, he looks like he's coming for you. And with his occupation, I'd be nervous. His occupation is master torturer. Everything about their relationship with Darkseid is, is tells you uh, is told in the bottom part of the serpent there. <laughs> How would you describe that? I mean, Darkseid's looking all you know the boss. Darkseid and- is not giving Desaad the time of day, and Desaad is looking very obsequious, like, oh, do you, okay, do you mind, sir? Yeah, the, the only thing that's missing is Darkseid killing him because right, he, right. do- he does that a lot. Right. And I talked a little bit about this before with Dark Sides. I'm not going to harp on it too much, but I mean, but serious empire building drama in here, as far as again the killing Dark Sides' wife, then killing Dark Sides' mother, then being killed by Dark Sides. I'm telling you, this is Game of Thrones meets Star Wars. You can't turn it, it could down. Be. It could be. It could be. So, very nice job by by Jack Kirby. It's a nice Jack Kirby drawing. I mean, you get some of Jack Kirby's cool machines in the background. You get a nice shot of Dark Side. It's a, it's a good one. I really like this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, a nice logo too. Yeah, and I think I've seen that logo a few times before. And maybe I'm just thinking of Desaad in the later Loose Leaf Who's Who. Well, they use it on the Superpowers package. Is that the same logo on the Superpowers? I believe so, yeah. All right. All right, this next one is really an interesting one. Yes. It's Despero. And Despero first appeared in Justice League of America number one. That's right. So he was, you know, Brave and the Bold number 28 was the first one. So Starro has has the right of being the first Justice League bad guy, but this guy has the right of being in the very first Justice League comic book. Right. Now, everything I say here, folks, just know the listener feedback uh, is going to be full of stuff from Frank because Frank actually does a thing every December. He does the December of Despero. <laughs> his March and Manhunter blog becomes a blog about Despero every December. So he's probably going to be yelling at me for anything I say here, so just fair warning. The, the most fascinating thing about this page to me is who did the art. Did you notice who did the art already? Yes, it's drawn by Len Wein. Yeah, and Dick Giordano. Yes. And it's like, the writer drew this? Right. So now I'm fascinated I, I, by that. I'm sorry, I have a little bit of info about that because I was always curious about that when I was a kid. So okay. I wrote to Robert Greenberger, one of our Who's Who editors, and asked him, why did Len Wein draw this? Now, did so, you write to him as a child or wrote to him just now? I wrote to him just a couple days ago in preparation for this episode. So uh, I actually did some research for once. So uh, I asked I asked Bob why did how and the hows and whys of why Len Wein drew this. So this is his response: "Quote as you may recall, both Len and Marv Wolfman tried to break in as artists before the realizing they were better writers. They decided that the scope of Who's Who allowed each of them to pencil a page without harming the series sales. <laughs> Len, Len claimed Despero out of longtime affection, while Marv grabbed <laughs> while Marv grabbed Plasmus, knowing George Perez would save him with the inking." <laughs> which, which, which he did, and we'll get to later on. But so, so that's the secret origin of why Len Wein drew this story. Is they figured they had so many entries to do, why not let the writer do one? And it oh, worked, fascinating! It, it worked out just well. It looks fine. It's it's not the greatest drawing in the world, but it's for for a guy that was a writer, this is not this is not a bad entry. I think it's perfectly fine. There's absolutely the the anatomy's great. Uh, you know, it, it's actually from a design point of view, I really like it because you've got the main shot of Despero. Then in the background, right beneath him, is a close up of his face. And then 
up above, there's a shot of him using his, he has a third eye, by the way, and we're going to talk a lot about this character in just a second. He's got a third eye, and he's got a, like a beam shooting out of his third eye, and he's pointing at him like, ah, you know. And then in the, in the open space, there's all these sort of like floating eyeballs, like Scooby-Doo-looking eyes everywhere. <laughs> I think it's a nicely designed page. Now, here's one of the interesting things about Despero that I never noticed until this drawing, and I have to look at some other pictures of him. He, he's got, around his neck, he's got these weird neck folds. Yeah. Like his skin actually like bunges up around his neck. I thought it was the collar of his shirt all this time. <laughs> but based on what I'm seeing in this drawing, it actually looks like it's his skin that sort of piles up there around his neck. I never noticed that before, but yeah, that is kind of gross. It is kind of gross. Uh, <laughs> now, Despero, if you know Despero, you probably know Despero as having the giant fin on his head. And when I say giant fin, I mean sort of like a mohawk or savage dragon kind of fin on his head. Right. Well, the fin is going 90 degrees differently from where it is here. Exactly. This is perpendicular to what a normal mohawk would be like. He's got a fin going side to side, which is really unique because I – that's an incredibly unique design. I don't – you don't see many aliens that look like this. So this was – this is probably – oh, geez. Uh, What's his name? The guy who drew the early Justice League issues, and it's escaping me. Mike Sikowski. Yes, you. Thank you. I don't know if Mike Sikowski drew number one or not, but this would have been – Okay, this would be a design by Mike Skowski, and I think it's a very, very clever design. Very hard for Despero ever to win a foot race. <laughs> the wind's always the wind, Yeah, the wind resistance is terrible. <laughs> so, now for me, I came into the Justice League late in the game. I didn't start reading the Justice League until the Detroit era. So my first Despero, Despero story was the one where he's actually transformed in the fire pits of Dimitar, or whatever it's called. Into the new, you know, huge muscle bound. nasty, badass Desperate, yeah. Yeah, and he really was badass. I mean, it was, a, like, reading that comic, I remember as a kid just being like, oh, my gosh. And then in Justice League International, they made him even bigger and even more huge and, you know, wearing the United Nations flag and stuff like that was cool. You know, very much a conqueror at that point. Here he's, I have a hard time taking him seriously as a conqueror here. He looks kind of, even though it's an interesting design, he looks a bit goofy, like, he doesn't really look like a Hitler kind of guy. he's happy, too. He looks very happy. Well, it's because he's killing people yeah. <laughs> and conquering things. But he's insanely powerful. I mean, he's got all these psychic powers that make him, like, creepy. I mean, like, his abilities to – he can scan the minds of an entire planet's population at one time. That's just creepy. Professor How X. Before Professor X did it. Yeah. So – but uh, certainly – Developed into, for me, a more interesting character. But at least at this stage, he was still, I mean, he's still a frequent villain of the JLA, still a world conqueror. Uh, I just think the later developed Despero was kind of cooler for me. Next up, we've got another two page. I'm sorry, what? This is my all time favorite. Oh, this <laughs> Double page? page. Okay. <laughs> just the, two disc- just the, the, the discordant note between the two characters. This is my favorite <laughs> thing. So it's, a, it's another twofer. Folks, you've got two characters on one page, and you can hear from Rob that uh, it's a pretty it, very uh, opposite end of the spectrum here. <laughs> this page the, is more than the sum of its parts. <laughs> the top is Destiny. <laughs> the bottom is Detective Chimp. Because sure, why not? <laughs> so on one level, you've got a cosmic level being who you know is tied into the fate of all man, all humankind, or actually all living beings. And at the bottom, you've got a monkey who solves crimes. <laughs> Or a chimpanzee. I don't know if he's technically a monkey. Whatever. But it is pretty wild. Now, the, the Destiny entry has always fascinated me here because this this character of Destiny would be later uh, annexed 
by oh by the way the, the destiny picture is by Eduardo Barreta beautiful and it's drawing a really, beautiful. it's a beautiful drawing yes he, he's standing there with his purple robes and he's got you know the big giant chain he's always changed the book of destiny so um he's got his, the book of destiny his hands outreached behind him is very much a George Perez weird rocky outcrop and in and then in the serpent is him he's reading the book and all these weird images are coming out of the book so seeing different people's destinies and futures so say so this is back before the character of destiny was annexed by Neil Gaiman for the Sandman series and this this character eventually became one of the endless for me it was a big deal because you know he would appear in Sandman and I'd go back to my who's who and I'm like wait a minute this isn't a new character this character's been around so um you know he's very much a mysterious character no one really knew anything about him He's known to have existed before the birth of chaos and the gods of Olympus. So he's, and actually here they don't call it the Book of Destiny. I'm sorry, they call it the Book of Souls, which was chained to his wrist there. And he bumped into it looks like Superman at least at one point. He first appeared in Weird Mystery Tales. Can I say that listing though in the Powers of Weapons where it says, and in one meeting with Superman, parentheses, see Superman two. I'm like, he was in that movie. I don't remember that. <laughs> no, see that every time I see that, now you brought you made me sad again. <laughs> sorry. Because it says, see Superman know, 2, which, yeah. which means, look for the Superman from Earth 1 entry later in Who's Who, and it never happens. It never, you get Superman from Earth 2, and you get Superman from Post-Crisis. You never yeah. get a Superman from Earth 1. And a tear is shed by Michael Bailey. So, um, Oh, he's got a whole new movie to worry about. That's true. He's all tied up in that. So one thing that fascinates me here, it says, base of operations, the cosmos. So what does that really mean? Does that mean that it's just a short commute to work because it's everywhere? <laughs> or does that mean, damn, that's a large area you got to cover? So I don't really know which way I would think about it. Find, be a little... find the watcher, turn left. <laughs> so uh, great job by Eduardo Barreto. And, and, you know, I think that um, – I guess because he drew Superman might be why he got this one. But I think there's – as we go along, there's a lot of Eduardo Barreto images in here. And, God, what a great artist. Oh, yeah. The, he just nails everything. I think didn't he do Colonel Fu- or Captain Future or whatever in the yes, last one? That yes, was he striking? did. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, I think I think sometimes you just get stuff by default. But man, he does some great. I mean, like assigned a page by default. But man, he does great work. So you know, you get this very cosmic level character. <laughs> Come on, you're wasting time. Get to the main thing. Come on. Carmen Infantino and Bill Ray draw Detective Jim, <laughs> and it's um he wasn't quite as stylized as he becomes in later years in Shadow Pack. But he's he's got his deerstalker cap, and he's got his you know, magnifying glass, and he's very Carmen Infantino esque. He's very I don't know. You're, say what you want to say. Clearly, he's just on the tip of your tongue. I love that Killing. he has an alter ego. <laughs> Bobo. Bobo. <laughs> he's always had that though. Right, I know, but the idea that the you know the detective chimp has another identity that he has. Yeah. And he is tied in with Rex the Wonder Dog, of course he is, and the legendary Fountain of Youth. So because he used to be. You know, around a long time ago as a character. And then they brought him back and they had to explain why this chimpanzee is still around. This is the, I'm sorry. I don't know why they had to bother. They don't bother with other characters. I don't know why they had to feel the need to with him. But This is, the, char- this is the character I use as an example when I say why superhero universes should not try and replicate the real world. Because <laughs> every, every time a writer says, oh, you know, I'm going to have a character that like, gets raped or murdered. Like, you know what? Don't do the real world because you know why this is a silly universe. You know why this is a silly universe? Because there's a character called Detective Chimp. <laughs> Who, it's funny because, like, he would show up every so often. Not very often, but, you know, he was, he'd be gone for, like, you know, a decade at a time or something. And then when he came around in Shadow Pack, he became, like, a fan favorite. I know. <laughs> 
He was a great character. They did some amazing things with him. And uh, whoever wrote this entry was obviously decided to have a little bit of fun because it ends with, at, at this writing, he continues to live in Florida. Of course he does. Uh, lives in Florida, making monkeys out of local criminals. <laughs> Why do you got to say, of course he does? <laughs> because I think he runs your board of elections down there. Oh. <laughs> well, it says he lives in Oskaloosa County, Florida, right? which, by the way, is not a real county. Oh, However, that's so disappointing. I wish that But was. there is an Okaloosa County, oh, well, which then is very, okay. very similarly named, okay. and it's not too far from my house. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm thinking road trip here. You get, <laughs> get out Go the find the home of Detective Chimp. Detective now, agencies. He, he, his gig was he would help a sheriff, a local sheriff. And if you can see the sheriff here in the surprint, which, you know, this is an unexpected crossover here. Apparently, Detective Chimp works very closely with the grandfather from Ben 10. So, nice little, nice little crossover there. So <laughs> it's all one big universe. It is. It's all shared. Yep. So, uh, okay, folks. I think eager. we can rush through the rest of this book. We really hit the high point. <laughs> you know, this next one though is worthy of talking about in on a lot of different levels. Okay, this is our first two-page spread. So, you know, they're going to cram Detective Chimp into half a page, but in the next two page, they give two pages to Dial H for Hero. Now, if you're not familiar with Dial H for Hero, you know, well, I'm just going to say, okay, I don't get this. <laughs> Dial H for Hero is a huge, huge phenomenon, all right? Like, especially when we were kids, it was huge. People just talked about it all the time. But the thing that, if you go back and really look at the history, you know, it came around in 1966, and it was only around for about two years on a regular basis. Then it came back in 1980, and it was only around for about three years. So... Now, it would show up from time to time at one-off stories, but it didn't have a really long publishing history, and yet it holds an incredibly special part place in the hearts of a lot of people. I don't get it. Uh, yeah, I, I would argue. Yeah, I don't really get it either. But I, it just somehow uh, captured the imagination of the right kind of fans who wanted to keep bringing it back because now it's got its own book again in the New 52. I, well, it had an, its own book a couple years ago, too. It's like people keep trying. Yep. And it's a fascinating concept. What the, what the gist of it is, there's a guy named Robbie Reed who found this – the order is really strange. He, he found himself caught in the middle of a crime rampage, and it was hurled from a cliff. And then he found a cave. So it's just kind of a strange sort of setup. But anyway, he found this weird dial, which is essentially like a telephone dial if you were to take it out of an old rotary phone. And it had letters on it. There are probably so many could, people listening to this who don't even know what that is. True. They're like, what's a rotary phone? Is that like the full pulse phones? Anyway. Um, and it, you would, there only looks to be like 12 spaces on here, but apparently he could dial any letter. Anyway. So he could, he would dial up the word H-E-R-O, hero, and he would transform into a hero. And every time he dialed hero, he'd transform into a different hero. And so a this new was, one, a new character, not, not yes. established character. Exactly, a brand new character. And I, I should, by the way, I haven't even mentioned the drawing yet. It's, as I said, it's a two-page spread. It's by Howard Bender and Dennis Jansen. And Howard Bender actually drew the 1980s version of the series, so that's kind of why he got this gig. But it's in the front, you've got Robbie Reed. You've got two other characters we're going to talk about in just a minute. And then in the, in the serpent, in the background, are, good Lord, what, three dozen, four dozen? Something like that. Little yeah, tiny superheroes? He definitely superhero. earned his keep on this one. Yeah, I hope they paid him extra money for this shot. But, I mean, there's a tons of little tiny characters in the background, and these are all different characters that the Dial H for Hero characters turned into over the years. Because, as Rob said, every single time they did, they did this, it was a different character, and it was a new character. You know, these guys before. And 
of guys with four arms, there's robots, there's fat guys, there's skinny guys, there's cool costumes. And I will say, as you sit here and look at all these cool costumes in the background, to some extent, it was, it was getting this gig of being the artist on this book was probably a combination of a dream come true and a nightmare. Like, a dream come true in that you get to design as many costumes as you want. Like, they totally should have got Dave Cockrum to draw this comic. Because <laughs> he's the greatest costume designer ever. But, they, they, you know, you get to design as many costumes as you want. And then the, the burden is, every issue, you got to design at least one or two new costumes. So, so Robbie Reed had this dial, and he was around as, as the dial H for hero character for, you know, at least in publication for two years. And then he would show up from time to time different books. And then in 1980... Uh, two new kids. Um, what are their names? Chris, uh, Chris, Chris and uh, uh, Chris and Vicky. Vic, yes, Christopher King and Victoria Grant. They found dials of their own. Chris's was a watch, and Vicky's was like a pendant, and it had less buttons. But they they each dialed, and they would dial here as well. And they each would turn in. So she would turn into female characters. He would turn into male characters. And they also would go off and fight little crimes in their little city. Uh, I can't remember what the name of the town was. It was really. It wasn't Smallville, but I thought it was like. Little town or something like somebody's probably yelling at their iPod, like, no, it's so and so. But anyway, and then there's a really quirky origin of why there are the the Chris and Vicky got their uh, dials and why Robbie wasn't involved anymore, where he had split into a good guy and a bad guy. It's very convoluted, but it, it all worked out and it created them villains for them to fight, obviously. So but so the entry, at least, is focusing on all three of the primary characters, even though they, they didn't really ever operate together. Just Chris and Vicky operated together, and Robbie operated on his own. But one of the neat things about the 1980 series was that readers would get to submit their own heroes and villains, and the artists would, and writers would pick some of them, and they would appear in the comic. Now, they'd be owned by DC Comics, not by the, by the kid who, who came up with them. But may, maybe that's where some of the passion for this comes from, is that little kids would write in and go, I want my guy to be in. You know, I want my guy who holds some sort of heart, you know, flute and he's got a, a treble clef on his chest be, to be in your comic. Or a guy riding a giant cat. A, or, guy, I, uh, a guy I went to Kubert with, uh, Tom Zoller, does a Love and Capes book, submitted a Dial H for Hero Hero and got it in the book. Seriously? He did. That's so cool. Now, there was one instance... Which, which he never tired of telling us. <laughs> I hope Tom's listening right now. I'm sure he's not. Uh, there was one character, actually... Uh, there was one time where they did transform into in a pre-existing yes, character. Yes, and you can see him right there. Yep, Plastic Man. Apparently, uh, I think it was Robbie, too, if I remember right. Yeah. Something, something happened, and he got affected, and so he, was, he met Plastic Man and then turned into an evil version of Plastic Man is what happened. <laughs> so Plastic Man actually took the dial from him at that point, and that was – anyways, it was interesting. So, But it's the only known character that was ever used. Everybody else was original characters. And, uh, yeah, like you said, there's a book right now. It's sort of a, isn't it, is it a Mature Readers or part of the Dark line? I don't think so. I don't know. It, Brian Boland does the covers, which makes it seem like it's kind of dark. Though. They, look, they, look, they look creepy. Right. So. Uh, we now, should I, mention before we get off this, there are 67 characters in the background. Did you just count? I did. Wow. Okay. So Howard Bender, uh, if he was paid by the character, he actually <laughs> was set up for retirement at this point. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, re- you know, I think this is going to be one of the ones we're going to put out there on the Tumblr. Because it's just that wow, you know? I love Vicky's Olivia Newton-John get up as well. She does look very Olivia Newton-John. I've been trying to figure out what it says on her little um, gym shorts. Mm. It's like there's, there's a patch, and I can't tell whether it's writing 
or whether it's, you know, like a, a Japanese character or something. I don't know what's on her shorts. Anyway. And yeah, I mean, it does look very 80s, doesn't it? <laughs> Chris has got the sleeveless. Yeah, he's rocking the sleeveless tunes. We got tickets to the gun show. Well, it looks like he uh, he was raided Vibe's closet, actually. <laughs> well, he wasn't using it because he was dead for so long. Oh, he wasn't dead yet. <laughs> uh, next up, we've got Dinosaur Island, one of my personal favorites. This is by Bill Ray and Greg Theakston. And uh, this is sort of, this is from the the War That Time Forgot line storyline that ran in Star Spangled War stories. And so you've got basically it's military soldiers fighting dinosaurs. <laughs> How have they not made this a movie? Well, it has been brought back numerous times because it's so awesome. <laughs> Again. American soldiers fighting dinosaurs is just like what everybody wants to see. I mean, I, I love, uh, well, it goes into, all right, I got, I got a brunch in this straight off the bat. The first line here, the first sentence is nine lines long. <laughs> this is, I think the longest sentence in any who's who ever. Here, I'm going to read it. One of a small chain of uncharted and isolated South Pacific islands protected from aerial discovery by perpetual cloud cover generated by the island's active volcano, Dinosaur Island was first discovered during the early days of World War II when seismic disruptions in the area were held responsible for the disappearance of several American submarines. Mm. Woo! That's really long. I had to take a breath there. I had to swallow even, I think. So, you've got, in the image, you've got a giant red Tyrannosaurus, you know, who's GI robots climbing up his back and shooting a pterodactyl down. You got a pterodactyl tearing a plane in half. You've got this giant crab monster coming out of the water. You've got you know, soldiers like, come on, let's let's get them, boys. And then over to the side, you've got uh, the creature commandos. You've got the Frankenstein, the 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 Dracula. Christ, it's still called Velcro. You've got the werewolf. This pretty much they just threw anything they could, military comic wise, onto Dinosaur Island at some point or another. Now, I actually have the showcase presents of The War of the Time Forgot, and I love it. It is like – it's a guilty pleasure because like it, they're all like eight-page stories, and they're all ridiculous, and they're just a blast. It's – you know again, it's, it's always like – something called Dinosaur Island would be ridiculous. But – <laughs> I really have no comeback on that. <laughs> I really assumed stories called Dinosaur Island were, were very somber treaties on, on existence and uh... – well, the neat thing is, like, every time it was always, like, the soldiers were surprised. It's like, it'd be a new batch of soldiers almost every time. They'd be like, oh, my goodness, dinosaurs, you know, and then, and then they'd fight them. So it was just like, it was almost like Transformers. You know Transformers gets reinvented every couple of years? You know, it was almost like that every issue. It's like, oh, what is this? I don't know anything about this. Um, now, there was one set of reoccurring characters they introduced, and they mentioned them in here. The Flying Boots, which were three circus aerialists. They were brothers who had become Marines. <laughs> their adventures. That happens. Their adventures were ridiculous. They were always doing like trapeze motions and you know it, flying around with like all chained together, doing a trapeze sort of thing off a vine to get away from a dinosaur. And it was always like, oh, oh, that is just so corny. It just cracks me up. No, no, you read the opening part. I have to read this final part here. It says through the okay. go- through the government ass- though the government assumed the beasts of Dinosaur Island had been sleeping in suspended animation beneath the earth. It has also been theorized that the earthquakes, which unleashed them once more upon an unsuspecting world, had in fact merely opened a temporary tunnel between Dinosaur Island and Skataris. See Skataris, the prehistoric land at the hollow center of the earth that is home to Travis Morgan, also known as the Warlord. See Warlord, and where dinosaurs still flourish. Neither theory has been proven as fact. I love that. It's like, that's ridiculous. That's just... 
Yeah, because dinosaurs on an island fighting soldiers is straightforward. Now, I will tell you, you're right. That sentence actually is 12 lines long versus my nine lines. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it's so much fun. Now, Bill Ray, as I said, Bill Ray and Greg Theakston drew this. Now, Bill Ray really wasn't terribly active with DC Comics at this point. Uh, he had been working over Pacific Comics, and he had done some stuff on, on Hunger Dogs and Superpowers. But, you know, you'll see more and more Bill Ray work in Who's Who, so he really started – Doing more and more of this stuff at this point. Now, Greg Theakston, of course, is the guy who uh, we mentioned earlier inked Jack Kirby a lot. So this is a it's just a fun dynamic drawing. Lots of fun stuff going on. I this. love Dracula's pose in the background there. He's like bleh, and he's turning into the bat. That's just great. Yeah. <laughs> his name's Velcro. Yeah, his name is Velcro. <laughs> this is great. I tell you, this is a series. This is a series. Oh, so okay, yeah. So we had the the War of the Time Forgot. We had um, gosh, they 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 bring it back every so often to different things. Then. Not too long ago, they had a War of the Time Forgot series that brought in all, like, their 1950s characters, regardless what time period they were from. Like, the Viking Prince was in it. Um, was it Sergeant Rock? Or, no, it was somebody else. But there were all these various, you know, warrior characters were all on the time, the, the War of the Time Forgot island. And now they're doing it right now in GI Combat, which is wrapping up. The Dinosaur Island is back again. So it's, it's a premise that doesn't go away. But, yeah, it would make a fun series. <laughs> sure would. So... All right, next up is Dr. Alchemy, drawn by Mike Vosberg and Dick Giordano. Another interesting art team. Mike Vosberg really was a Marvel guy at this point, and was really well-known for drawing G.I. Joe. So getting him over here to do this, I'd, I'm, I'd be interested to hear the story on that, how that came about. But it's a nice picture. It's, a, it's the image I see, always see of Dr. Alchemy <clears throat> when I see him. His right arm is up. Holding He's holding his potato the, of power. His potatoes. <laughs> His philosopher's stone, and there's a little atomic symbol around it, and he's got his cowl with the big, big, his big green cowl with the A on it, and it's got his little neckerchief tied around him. Um, it's a, he's a bit of a little bit of a goofy looking character, but really weird origin. He is, let me see if I can get this right. Okay, there's Doctor Alchemy and there's Mister Element. Both are Flash villains. Okay, both have similar powers. Doctor Alchemy uses the Philosopher's Stone. Mister Element uses a gun. In both cases, they transform one element into another. Mister Element is Albert Desmond. All right, you with me so far? I think so. Okay. Doctor Alchemy is Alvin Desmond. Okay. <laughs> Alvin. Okay. Got Albert and Alvin. So you'd think, okay, two guys, same powers, uh, you know, Desmonds, they're probably twins or brothers or something, right? No, of course not. Alvin is, wait for it, the psychic twin of Albert Desmond. Both born at the exact same moment, but far apart, miles, thousands of miles apart. They share a psychic link, which neither one of them were aware of, and... Alvin Desmond, which is this guy, Dr. Alchemy, was possessed by evil urges. And those evil urges would go away whenever his psychic twin, Albert Desmond, was running around as Mr. Element. So as long as one of them was evil, the other one was doing okay. Sort of a Corsican brother sort of thing, almost, but opposites. You know, like, if one of them was out committing evil, the other one was okay, and vice versa. So whenever Albert at Desmond, Mr. Element, would reform and become, you know, like, you know, a standing citizen... Alvin suddenly felt the need to go commit crimes, so he'd become Dr. Element. And uh, it's really, it's weird. <laughs> it's really whoever weird. created this character is being a little too cute by half with all that complicated stuff. It's, 
Woo! It's it was like I used to read this stuff in the Flash comics, and it just would it make my brain hurt. But he was uh, early. Look at look at his first appearance. It's showcase number thirteen. That's really oh. early in the Flash's career. So he was he was up there really really early on. Well, his very first appearance was not this guy. The first appearance was the guy who became Mr. Element. Like he oh, first right. appeared as Doctor. So to make it even more confusing, he first appeared as Doctor Alchemy, then became Mr. Element, and then his psychic twin became Doctor Alchemy. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. All right, let's move on. <laughs> but I do want to mention the whole psychic twin thing again. There's going to be a theme. There's the themes in these issues. It's alphabetical, but it's kind of crazy. So, all right, Doctor Bedlam. This is one of the fourth world characters. Works for Darkseid. Um, he is an interesting character in that. He's totally like a sort of being of energy, psionic energy to be exact. He has these things called, uh, what are they called, duploids, I think is what they're called. Let me see. Dude, dude, humanoid body. Come on, help me out here. Where is this? Animates. Animates. He has these army of basically robots that he puts his psychic consciousness into, or he, or he can control them or put his psychic consciousness into. And if he does that, the animate just changes shape to look just like him, his clothes even, which is kind of, a, you know, convenient. So you can look in the mirror, you know, see what you look like. And um, I don't have much else besides that. <laughs> I never engaged on this character. Now, there's, there's one thing worth mentioning. He has something, uh, a weapon called a paranoid pill. Okay. Which makes people take a wild guess. What emotion do you think it, it, it makes them feel? Sleepy? No. Okay, fine. You're not playing along. <laughs> I, I made a guess. I don't know after that. Yeah, paranoid. So, oh, okay. Yes. The, the the thing about it, though, is it <laughs> like the way they uh, define it as how powerful it is. He His, his uh, paranoid pill – where is it? I'm trying to find the exact wording here. I'm sorry. Is powerful enough – there we go. It releases a gas that can drive everyone within a large office building. <laughs> Temporarily insane with fear and hatred. So that's how they measured that. A large office building. Now, not, you know, before, you know, I just, I thought that was a very strange, it must be what he used in the comic, it must be what it is, but it was just kind of a strange sort of measurement tool. Would you not like, assume that the, the, the paranoid pill was Jack Kirby's sort of version of pot? <laughs> they couldn't say that in a comic in the 70s. But, you, you think know. that's what it was? You think it was Reefer well, Madness? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, hey, man, have you ever looked at the dollar bill? Look at the eye, man. Look at the eye. It's all a code, you know? It's the same sort of thing. <laughs> it could very well be. It could very well be. Damn comics code. All right, folks, we're on page 22, and I'm still wondering why some people think this is their favorite issue. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <but> there's... <laughs> Well, we did get the Detective Chimp. I mean, I mean, it's a good issue. There's some good stuff in here. Don't get me wrong. And there's some great art, but it... I don't know. <laughs> All right, next up is Dr. Cyber, who was a Wonder Woman villain. And the drawing <laughs> yeah, by... You could not have said that with less enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> your whole mouth, your whole voice dropped an octave when you... <laughs> Dr. Cyber, who was a Wonder Woman villain. <laughs> it's just like... Right, let's, let's just be honest. Wonder Woman in the Bronze Age, outside of the Diana Prince new Wonder Woman era, is not highly regarded. It's a fact. You know, I've never read it. It, no, may, I, it. it may be fantastic. What I'm laughing at is not you didn't intend to say that, but your inner monologue came out. I, it, you're right. It did. <laughs> I, I don't – even myself, even though I haven't read it, I don't have a lot of passion for Bronze Age post-new Diana Prince era of Wonder Woman. No, you know, it's no. – and, and we've said it before, and I'm sorry, Don Heck just doesn't grab me on superhero stuff. Yeah. 
This so is, he, um, this is the, I think, 35th character in this book alone who's been described as would-be conqueror. <laughs> Rob's got a tally sheet going, so just in case you're wondering. So, now, to me, like, I, I immediately skip over this entry in my mind and, and just jump forward and go, okay, Dr. Cyber came back in the power company with Kurt Busiek and Tom Grummet, which was sort of a cool interpretation of the character. So that's how I can, in my mind, I can be like, okay, she can hang around, eh? She can hang around. Uh, and she actually, when she, her origins come about during the Diana Prince period, but she apparently, if I'm reading this right, I think she came back quite a few times. Yeah. So, uh, not the most awe-inspiring character. Um, she did get damaged, or not, but she got injured when someone threw a, <clears throat> I guess it's a brazier of hot coals. When I first read that, I thought it said brazier of hot coals. <laughs> Uh, you know who this? You know who she reminds me of? Really, it's like a costume version of. Remember Superman three? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. I know, but you remember the woman got trapped in the machine? Yeah, and she, she kept, becomes the like, robot. Yes. Yeah, like it reminds me of that character, like in a purple costume. Is like what she sort of like to me. <laughs> so um, now the, the I do like her logo. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, it's very nineteen eighties. It looks very sort of hubba bubba bubblegum ad sort of look. <laughs> And doing some research on this character, I didn't know this. She actually appeared in Justice League Unlimited, the cartoon. And then she also appeared in the Batman Brave and the Bold, uh, not not cartoon, but the comic book based on the cartoon. So she's, she's come back a couple of times. Oh, good for so. her. Good for her. So, yay, Dr. Cyber. All right. Uh, next up is Skeletor, drawn by <laughs> Rudy Nebris. Oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Destiny. Dr. Destiny. So. He was first. You really should call Skeletor, Skeletor Dr. Dr. Destiny. Destiny. That's true. That's true. Now, Rudy Nebrez does this, and he does a really nice job. Uh, Dr. Destiny looks great. I mean, he looks really buff, which he did back then. He looked buff back then. He looks buff. He's, he's Other than sort of his left raised, his, his wrist at a weird angle. But anyway, his face is creepy. The serpent looks great. It's a nice, nice shot of the guy in the background. And him standing triumphantly in front of the Justice Leaguers, especially Aquaman. Now, I want to point out, before I forget this, uh, I would assume that Rudy Nebrez was a fan of Aquaman because, as Shag points out, you see Dr. Destiny standing there. And he's standing in front of three JLAers who are trapped in these little stasis tubes. And there's one arm who you can't make out, so you don't know who that is. Then you see Wonder Woman and you see Aquaman. When, when, a, when a comic book artist was probably given the instructions of, you know, put Dr. Destiny or put, put you know, this villain in front of the Justice League, they never drew Aquaman. True. They always drew Superman or Batman. So the fact that he went out of his way to draw Aquaman makes me think that Rudy Nebrez was an Aquaman fan. So, And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> now, being of an artist's background, maybe you can help me out. I did a little research to try and figure out why Rudy did this. Like, you know, I was trying to figure out, is he an old JLA artist, whatever. I could find no connection. Uh, that's a good – yeah. I don't – I can't think of any either, really. He, he must have drawn some issue of Doctor with the head Doctor Destiny, in it, but I can't think. His most, I, I really looked. I mean, I looked okay. hard. Okay. I mean, I could be wrong. I may have missed it, but uh, he, he does a really nice job. I mean, he he's a good artist. I mean, he drew a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, he did a lot of Conan and, and stuff like that, and so he did a lot of Batman stuff too. Did he? Okay, yeah. all right. Well, it's it's a really nice drawing of Doctor Destiny. Yep. And um, Doctor Destiny is sort of like. He's, he, 
He's a really he's a, he's, a, he's a repeated loser. It's kind of what it is Aww. as a character. Like, well, he was he was a loser as a villain. He kept getting tranced over and over and over, and then finally, th- this horrible, uh, this sad thing happened, and he could no longer dream. Let's see. To prevent Destiny from using his extraordinary mental powers against them, the Justice League sent a psychiatrist to Destiny's cell. And through hypnotic suggestion, he ruined Destiny's dream manapter material opticon, which was like his, his power base. Unfortunately, he also inadvertently robbed Destiny of his ability to dream. His nights became a constant torment for all men need to dream, and Destiny could not. Now, this to me is where the character became really interesting. Because before this, he was, he was really kind of a loser. He got, he got beat quite a bit. He could no longer dream, so he wasted away. Literally, his, his, that skull face you see, Dr. Destiny, that's his head, guys. That's not a mask. He wasted away by not being able to dream. It became sort of like this decrepit thing. He still had the physique, but his, he just withered, and it drove him absolutely back crazy. And he lost his hair. He turned waxy. And this is where a lot of the Dr. Destiny stories I found got really creepy. And also this leads to, again, Neil Gaiman annexing this character for his first arc with Sandman, where you find out that, you know, a lot of Destiny's power is coming from this gemstone, and that's actually, uh, you know, was one of Sandman's old, you know, tools of power. So it really took a weird, creepy turn, and it, I, I think it was great at that point. Next up is Dr. Double X, drawn by Rick Buckler and Larry Malstead. And then I love Rick Buckler. And this is a really nice drawing of a character that I could not care less about. <laughs> is that the same guy that was dead shot in the background there? Uh, Floyd, Floyd Lawson. Let's look a little bit <laughs> like that. Or Lawton. Um, here's the thing. All right. We talk. I really don't care about this guy. First so I'm going to make fun of him. Okay. If he's called Dr. Double X, it should be a woman. <laughs> Just saying. Wow. That'd be Dr. Double D. But anyway. No. Uh, the chromosomes. Oh. Oh, I thought you were going to different. No, ways. I wasn't. Your oh, your jokes are always so smart. No, double X is women chromosome. XY is a man. So, so here's the gist Read of this book, character. Shag. Here's the gist of this character. Uh, he stole Deathbolt's co- costume, changed the colors. None of this is true, by the way. Changed the colors and then put straps across his chest to make a big X. That's his. That's done much, and done. Right, because he looks just like Deathbolt. Then his power is he has a. Basically, energy version of himself, an energy aura <laughs> that comes out of his body that looks just like him, except the X that this guy's got in his chest, the ghostly astral energy version has two X's in his chest, being double X. Double X. And they're two distinct individuals. I mean, it's the same guy, but one has different you know, sort of personality than the other one slightly. And they work together. And if you look back at the Dr. Alchemy, Mr. Element thing, if anybody's a psychic twin, this is more of a psychic twin to me. You know, there's, there's that, this is where that re- repetition thing keeps happening, or the, the theme. This is like a psychic twin. He's got a psychic aura twin. Like, he comes out of him. So you've got the human version, and then you've got the psychic energy version. And they go and do really useless, ridiculous stuff. So um, Rick Butler drew him in World's Finest. I think that's why he got this gig. Now, the character did reappear uh, or appear in Batman, the Bat, uh, the Brave and the Bolt yes. animated series. In fact, in the episode with Firestorm. Yes. So Firestorm had to fight this guy. And that's all I've got on that. I mean, okay. this guy, really, uh, I, have, I have so little passion for him. I'm surprised you're even saying as much as you are considering what the next entry is. Let me turn the page. Here it is, folks. This is the payoff. This is why issue number six is everybody's favorite. This is what you've all been waiting for. <laughs> 
Dr. Fate. <sighs> Dr. Kent Nelson, drawn by Keith Giffen and Larry Maltstead. And it is an awesome Dr. Fate drawing. Dr. Fate is sort of hovering. He's sort of descending down to Earth. And his cape is up above him. And if you look at it, it's, his cape, it, the way they've designed it, it's almost shaped like an Ankh himself. Not quite, but sort of. Uh, great shot, shot of Keith Giffen is a master drawing Dr. Fate if you don't know Keith Giffen's history before this point yes he certainly went on was very involved with the character after Crisis but before then he actually drew the backups in Flash right. of Dr. Fate so he's got a long history with the character it's a great when you get Dr. Fate in the foreground in the background you've got like ghostly vision of Naboo with uh, Ken Nelson's face and some Egyptian iconography then on the other side you've got Fate's tower in Salem a giant onk, you've got some cool wizardry, like crystal ball kind of stuff, and you've got his wife Inza, who looks surly and mad because she's always mad. That's that's her that that's her shtick. She's always pissed at Kent and, and Naboo. So and uh, as I read this, I found it interesting there's one piece in here that I was like, huh? Um, it says that Naboo's from the planet Cilia. And I was like, I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, well it didn't last, but Nebu is a basically a, a, a being. It's called a Lord of Order. He's sort of this cosmic being who was entombed in Egypt. And Kent Nelson and his father were. His father was an archaeologist, and Kent Nelson was a boy. And they stumbled across the tomb. And the father was killed by this, you know, ancient trapped gas. And the boy was there. And Nebu trained the boy to adulthood. In later histories, they tell you he grew the boy to adulthood in, you know, almost instantly. But here he trained Kent to adulthood. And trained him to become Dr. Fate. And Nabu kind of trapped his own conscience inside the Dr. Fate helmet. So whenever he would put on the helmet, Nabu would actually take control. Kent Nelson was no longer in control of the body. The whole personality was submerged. And it's not like a firestorm thing where you've got two consciousnesses talking to each other. It's just when Dr. Fate, when the helmet's on, he is Dr. Fate. When the helmet is off, he is Kent Nelson. It's that simple. And this creates a lot of stress between him and his wife, Inza. And he joined the Justice Society. And after a while, uh, he, he didn't like giving up his own personality anymore, so he stopped wearing the Dr. Fate helmet for a while. And this is something Dr. Fate fans may not be aware of. He wore, like, a half helmet that only went to, like, his nose, and Naboo was not in that helmet. And Naboo had imbued Kent with certain powers. He was still able to fly, levitate, uh, things. He was strong. He was invulnerable. So he could still be a hero, but he was Kent Nelson. He wasn't Naboo. And that, you see that version in some issues of All-Star Squadron, where he's flying around with a half helmet, and he's more, like, right. you know, Roy, smiling. Roy, Roy, Roy Thomas found a way to, like, retrofit that. Yeah. Yep. And uh, in fact, Rob Kelly was kind enough to buy me uh, a while back a archives of Dr. Fate. And you can see that transition in the story where he goes from being sort of the magical sort of mystical character to where he starts wearing the half helmet. He's more of a Superman ripoff, honestly, to some extent, where he's just sort of a superhero. He's going, they all, really? he's going around punching people and stuff, you know, which cracks me up when Dr. Fate punches somebody. It's just so not Dr. Fate. Now, there is an interesting line in here that they felt was necessary. He says, you know, when wearing his original helmet, Dr. Fate is one of the most powerful of all known sorcerers, capable of virtually any kind of magic feat. However, his power is still dwarfed by that the virtually omnipotent Spectre. <laughs> so I was like, wow, he's still a bug, is what they're trying to say. Yes. Dr. Fate's a bug compared to Spectre. And Dr. Fate was from Earth 2, and at the end of Crisis, Dr. Fate becomes a very, you know, starts to become a big player in the main DC Universe, which is great. So... I love this character so much. Totally, uh, well, not totally unrelated, but slightly unrelated. There is an Etsy store that you can go to where you can buy a full-length, full-size 
Dr. Fate helmet. Yes, I've seen some of those at conventions and stuff. By the way, you guys should check out the Tower of Fate blog. Uh, it's uh, over on Blogspot, and it's fun. Got celebrating Dr. Fate and all his incarnations. Next up is Dr. Light. Um, wow, this from the, guy... From the sublime to the ridiculous is but a step. <laughs> he really is... You know, I, I said earlier that Dr. Destiny was a loser before his powers changed. Um, Dr. Light is always a loser. And he becomes more of a loser as time goes by, at least at this point in history. He starts off as a JLA-level threat. Then he sort of... They sort of, like, downgrade him. <laughs> they... they they delegate him to the Teen Titans, <laughs> and then he forms the Fearsome Five, and he's the head of that. Where and all those gets, guys crap on him. Right, and then he gets fired from being head of the Fearsome Five, and it's like, yeah, could you get any – eventually he just retires. He just, And tired. nothing else happened with that character ever again. I can't be can't more stand. adamant about that. No. What happened happened. No, no, there's no – no, no. Well, no, in Identity no, Crisis, there no, is some retro No, 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 not the, no. Fine. No. Rob, just take a break. No. Uh, there's some retro continuity no. that explains that no. Dr. Light was a, I'm not going to go to the detail of no. it, but was a horrible, horrible, no, horrible no, no, man. No, you're making all this up. No, no, nobody would ever publish such a comic book. So. Horrible man, no. and then Zatanna mind wiped no, him. That's, no, that's, I don't, which explains why, why you're he lying such right a bumbling villain. I'm going to edit all this out. <laughs> so, interesting, I was reading his, his origin here. By the way, the first time, I remember the first time I found out his real name was Arthur Light. I, as a kid, I, found, I thought that was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard of. I just laughed my butt off. I'm well, like, that's so stupid. Technically, Dr. Light. Exactly. Um, he created a device. He was trying to view the future, but instead he created a device that allowed him to see what's happening on other planets. That is totally not what I expected Dr. Light's first <laughs> creation to be. I expected perhaps a light ray of some sort. Anyway, so he focused on Thanagar. That, that's like and, akin to saying I was build, trying to build a roller coaster and I accidentally cured cancer. I'm just like, <laughs> I understand how those two things are related. I would agree. So he apparently builds uh, – he, he, he's able to see Thanagar and he goes through the – it turns out it's a space warp. He goes through and steals a bunch of crap. And then he uses that to become Dr. Light, which is like I totally thought he would have invented something light-powered. But no, he just stole all that crap. Anyway, so he, as we said, he just keeps getting his butt kicked over and over and over and over. And now it's a nice drawing by Paris Cullors, Cullins and Eduardo Barreto. I mean, that's a, they make a great team. I, I really like that. I mean, the foreground image uh, looks nice of Doctor Fate with his, uh, Doctor Light with his hand up, and because he does have a cool costume. Yeah, really. different, interesting color scheme. And can I point out that much how I said how Rudy never as must love Aquaman because he purposely included him. Paris Cullins must hate Aquaman because here. You see Dr. Light fighting the JLA, and everyone is pictured except for Aquaman. So, screw you, Paris Collin. There's no Superman. Well, yeah, no but they, yeah, but they, those guys were never in the main JLA stories. True. In the beginning. True. Aquaman was. So, here you've got Green Arrow, Flash, Martian Manhunter, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman. Aquaman is noticeably absent. So, again, once again, screw you. <laughs> That's a good Paris point. Martian Manhunter made it in here, yeah. and he's almost in no who's who at all. I can't say it enough. <laughs> screw you, Paris Collins. Hey, I really like Paris Collins. I, mean, I really, really like his work. I okay. wish he had stayed doing stuff for DC for years. Okay. So, all right. Uh, the next two pages here, they're individual listings. Page twenty-eight and twenty-nine. It's Doctor. It's Doctor Light number two and Doctor Midnight. Are like somebody sat down with a crystal ball when they assigned the artists for this these two pages, and I'll explain why in a moment. So you've got and the next entry is for Doctor Light two. 
which is Kimio Hoshi, which was created, uh, a new character was created during Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, a Japanese scientist who became the new Dr. Light. And I actually, I kind of like her logo there. She's got these weird lines coming out of it. It kind of gives you a sense of motion and, and things moving. And by the way, this drawing is done by Ron Randall. Now, here's the fortune-telling aspect of this. Ron Randall then went on to draw Justice League International years later. And I don't mean the regular Justice League International. This is the one that started off as Justice League Europe and became Justice League International. And this Dr. Light, Kimi Hoshi, was a main character in the book. And he drew her quite a bit. And she became a, a very important character during his tenure as artist. So it's kind of interesting that he really didn't have any connection to the character at this time. But later on down the line, he would. Anyway, she had only been around for a month when this entry came out. <laughs> and yet, there's a lot of history here. Like, obviously, is Marv Wolfman one of the contributing people? Because I would think he'd have to be. Yeah, yeah. he is. Okay. He must have wrote this because you know, he wrote Crisis. And I mean, he goes into detail saying stuff that was never revealed in Crisis, where he says, like, her powers can perform delicate surgery or destroy an invading fleet of attackers. You know, we don't get that from Crisis. So he, clearly you're getting more information here, which isn't, doesn't usually happen. You don't usually get more information of who's who than you do in the real comics. So it's sort of interesting you get it here. And now here's a little personal editorial. I've never understood why they created this character. Um, because she's created in Crisis, which is a big deal. Her creation's a big deal. The book's a big deal. She sort of plays a role later on, but nothing. She didn't like save the universe. No, kind of but thing. she 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 she's around a lot. She's a she's a big player in that issue where Supergirl dies. And then she goes nowhere after that. That's what are you talking about? She was in Justice League. No, that's what she was. That in. was that was like two years later or a year later. Well, all right, a year later. And right. then she was only in the only in she was only a member of the Justice League International for I think two issues. I think Maybe, it was, no, it was longer. She may have gone to seven. Okay. I don't remember, but she, it's just strange. It's almost seemed like I would think Marv Wolfman had a plan for her. Maybe like I'm going to introduce this character in crisis and then we're going to give her her own series or she's going to be a character in justice league or be a character well, in teen Titans. I think or something. there was a lot of stuff that was planned for after crisis. It didn't quite work out. So, well, I think, I think this is one of them. That's why this character has always left me kind of scratching my head. So, okay. Next page is a, by the way, I'm sorry, I should have the Ron Randall drawing of Dr. Light's really nice. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really big drawing. It takes up the majority of the page. She looks very, you know, action-oriented. She's got a, basically a mirror image, not a mirror image, but she's got the same costume that the original Dr. Light wore, but just a little more curvy and a little bit of different headpiece. And uh, it's, it's a nice drawing. It's really well done. Mm -hmm. All right, next page is Dr. Midnight. Love this character. By Matt Wagner and Romeo Tangal. This is one of my all-time favorite Who's Who illustrations, period. Yeah. I'd put it in it, top five favorite of the entire it, series. It should be. It should be. And here's where the fortune-telling comes in on this one, too. Matt Wagner would go on years from now, years from this, and write the Dr. Midnight uh, legacy character, Peter Cross. Okay. Piet Peter Cross or whatever, who eventually joined the Justice Society and, you know, the Jeff Johns Justice Society mm -hmm. era. Created by Matt Wagner. I didn't know that. Now, and maybe he volunteered for this one because he had such a passion for the character or these ideas of what he could do with the character. I don't know. But, God, this is so good. In fact, if you combine this with Mike Parabic's interpretation of Dr. Midnight in the Justice Society ongoing series, that this is the only character I have ever been interested in cosplaying. Oh, oh God, I would pay so much money to see you as a cosplay Dr. Midnight. But the nice thing is, you'd never know it was me. 
because the only part of his body that's showing is his nose and mouth. So, but uh, just it's well, by a the str- fact that that, that Doctor Fate, Doctor Midnight, would never stop talking. We'd know it was him. <laughs> I hate you so much. Um, it's it's a if you don't know the original Doctor Midnight costume, it is an amazing costume. It's got the red sort of uh, tunic, tunic, black pants, brown boots. Green cape, green cowl with goggles and a moon on it. It's it, it's a very striking looking. It's not a goofy superhero costume, really, but it's it, it's very functional. It would you know it would work. You know if you wore a dark enough green, it could really work. And um, he's got his owl flo- flying in like about to land on his arm. And in the background, you've got he's throwing knock- blackout bombs at people, and you can see a close up of Charles McNider's face. Now here's something. Honestly, I didn't realize. I didn't realize he was a writer. It. it, it I, I always knew him as a surgeon, you know, a medical doctor. Right. But as I was reading this, he was actually a magazine writer at this point after he lost his eyesight. I didn't know that. You got to do something. Can't be a surgeon anymore. Uh, it's even well, he did in many comics. He should have gone. In, he should have gone into the law. <laughs> That'd be a good team up, wouldn't it? <laughs> and there's even in the surprint there is an image of him at a typewriter typing a story. There so it, it's it, it. This was one of those ones where I'm like, this is the coolest this character has ever looked. I, you know, I just uh, Matt Wag- to me it's like Matt Wagner single handedly make this character more viable because he just Ugh. looks so friggin' cool. It's such a great job. I agree with the second half of everything you said. Okay. <laughs> I think the character was very viable before. This. All right, I maybe I shouldn't character- say viable, but just I think made younger people who didn't know the character just kind of sit up and go, "Wow, that guy's awesome looking." Yes, okay. yes. And Matt Wagner turned him into sort of a a Batman esque kind of character. Really Which makes sense, you know. So yeah. Uh, this is something else I learned in here when I was reading his, his origin. Uh, he, at one point, carried a strain, a different weapon called a cryotuber, <laughs> which doesn't sound good when you say it out loud. But anyway. It's a frozen potato is what that was. Right. <laughs> he could take control of, an, of the nervous system of another person. It could control their movements. It could temporarily freeze them. That's nasty. Yeah. Um, I don't remember him ever doing that. <laughs> I guess he only carried it for a while, but that's like kind of like, that's just geeky. <laughs> what are you doing, Chuck? Next up is Dr. Occult, drawn by the amazing Eduardo Barreto. Uh, Dr. Occult is a magic-based character who basically just wears a trench coat and a fedora, and he carries around this sort of circular thing that I always thought it was just a pattern that goes back and forth. It's actually supposed to be like a cross. I didn't realize that. It's supposed to be a mystic cross. Um, okay. I didn't get that. No, I've never it doesn't got... really look like that. It looks like a I... spinning top. Yeah, I always thought that too, but it's a, it's apparently it's supposed to be a mystical cross. So, the interesting thing about this character, there's, there's, a, there's a debate about this character, because he came out a long time ago. We're talking the early 1930s, or mid-1930s. He was around before Superman. Yes. And, and they're created by the guys who did Superman, Sequel and Schuster. Yes, he is. And at one point, he went to go fight someone, and uh, a villain, and... The, these beings called the Seven gave him a costume to wear, which included a cape. So a lot of people give him the label of the first costume hero of the Golden Age. And it's sort of a, like a nasty fight that people have about this issue. <laughs> it's like, I don't really know that it's worth the, the oxygen to do that. I mean, it was it was one appearance that he wore this, and Siegel and Schuster's intention was never him to be a superhero. He was a guy who could call on some mystical abilities, but he was never, you know... A Superman kind of character. So I, I call bogus on it, but I get where they're coming from. And Eduardo Barreto was clearly trying to channel Joe Schuster's work with this drawing because he made him give him that squinty face. 
I mean, he, uh, Dr. Cole looks like Superman did in the 1930s. He had the squinty, like the Max, squinty eyes and stuff like Looks that. like the Max Fleischer cartoon, yeah. 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 If you replace the trench coat for a regular suit, that'd be Clark Kent with glasses. Or Dick Tracy, um, if you want to make it yellow. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Now, here's the interesting thing. This is where who's who sort of messed with people's perceptions, like messed with mine specifically. I read this, Dr. Cold, interesting character. You know, he made an appearance in Crisis as well. So I'm thinking, okay, here's a very active character. He's been around. He's a magical guy. Turns out that before this page in Who's Who that we're looking at right now, his last appearance was in June 1938. <laughs> he had not been seen since then. Well, no, that's not – no, that's not right. Uh, you sure? Yeah, he appeared in Detective Comics number 500. When was that published? Uh, like 1980. Really? Yes. Because that's not – well, then uh, apparently Comic Book Database needs to update their records then. Okay. Because uh, according to that, he literally didn't appear from 1938 to 19 – till this issue here. So, okay, I guess he was in Detective Comics. There you have it, folks. Thanks, Rob. All my research I did. Where'd you get that Detective Comics 500 reference I've, from? I've, I have that book. Yeah, oh. I could be – look, I, I could be totally wrong, but I don't think I am. I think I remember that he was in there. Okay. I mean, it would make sense. It was a detective issue. I mean, wasn't that the one with all the detectives? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. Um, so he went on to appear in All-Star Squadron and Crisis and, you know, kind of – then he kind of moved over to the Vertigo universe for a while. was in sort of the tight end of the Books of Magic stuff. So um, great drawing. And uh, he's a really interesting character. So Dr. Phosphorus by Walt Simonson. Oh, really? I'm sorry. Hold on. Wait a minute. Before we go, for, I'm wrong. I'm confusing him with Slam Bradley. Ah. Okay. You maybe right. Okay. I was confused. They look very similar. When we get to Slam Bradley, we'll see that. But you're right. There we go. So yeah, 1938 all the way to 1985. Not a peep. And then suddenly he's back in action. So it sort of messed with. I just assumed he was kind of a, a mainstay of the DC universe. I had no idea that he had been gone forever. So that's kind of a, one of the neat things. Who's who could do is they could bring a character back, and a kid wouldn't care. If his last appearance had been that long ago. Right. Yeah. All right, so next up is Dr. Phosphorus by Walt Simonson. It's an interesting drawing. Like, at, at first glance, I would look at this and go, hmm, next. I wouldn't really pay much attention to it. But once you really start to look at, like, the line work in here, it's really good. He's a creepy-looking villain, too. Big skeleton. Except for his jean shorts, uh, he's a really cool-looking character. He is wearing Daisy Dukes. And I... I got to think that wasn't their original plan, but somebody said, no, no, we can't get it back to the comics code without it. But essentially, it's really sort of tragic origin. Uh, The guy bought it like an oil rig kind of thing. and um, Or wait, it was was a nuclear power plant. And he went out there. It was going to be at sea. He went out there to go see it, and it it starts to have like a, a, a problem. And he dives behind this pile of sandbags. Well, the explosion goes off. And it pushes five million slivers of red-hot sand through his flesh. And the, the atomic reaction causes the sand to shift up one level on the chemical scale from silicon to phosphorus. So he's become a creature of living phosphorus. And so you can, see, you can sort of see through his skin. You can see his bone structure. He's... Every, the air around him is burning because phosphorus burns and, you know, with, com, combines with oxygen. And it drove him totally insane. Gee, I was shocked at that. <laughs> so, uh, and he, you know, he, he emits poisonous fumes and he's glowing with pure white radioactive flame. And anything he touches, you know, burns. 
So it's it's he's, he's a tragic character, and um, at first I wondered like what, wondered why Walt Simonson drew it. Did a little research. He actually drew Detective Comics 470 in 1977 that featured Doctor Foster. Right. So um, <laughs> the shorts though crack me up. I will say, <laughs> I, as far as I know, though I'm not an expert, but I don't think that private citizens can own nuclear power plants. Well, it was a private nuclear plant, though. Right, but I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can oh. own one of the other than Mr. Burns. I don't <laughs> think you can you can just own one of those. I think that's, that has to be you know like it's, somewhat government owned and regulated. You can't. That's just, right. Otherwise, you know, Korea would be a lot more free and clear. Yeah, to do you, you, you can't just. Hey, I have some. Uh, I have some material here. Uh, we'll just open up a shop and create some nuclear energy. Good point, good point. But, you know, um, this is the same universe that Lex Luthor was elected president, so what the hell. And there's a talking chimp. So, and there's a talking uh, Final entry in here is Dr. Polaris by Gil Kane. Uh, I do dig the, the costume he has here. And they show his old costume in the background, which is a little ridiculous. And <laughs> Captain clearly, Magnet! What's that? Captain Magnet! He clearly raided uh, Kronos' closet for those trunks. Because he's got the vertical striped trunks that <laughs> looks just like Cronus type stuff. Uh, and it's a nice drawing. Though. I mean, you, you get him in the foreground. He's using sort of his zapping magnetism powers. You, you've got Green Lantern fighting him in the Serpent. You've got a close-up of his face in his suit in the background and his old costume. Um, it's not my favorite Gil Kane drawing. I mean, no, like the it's face, not mine either. The face of Dr. Polaris in the, in the foreground image, he looks like one of the weaponers of Quar, to be quite honest. You know, they have that kind of weird faces. That's, that's what he looks like. So, But he did have an interesting origin in that he's sort of a Jekyll and Hyde personality that he can't control. And he becomes Dr. Polaris. And then Neil Emerson is not such a bad guy. And, and they use that later on. <clears throat> in fact, I believe he's the uncle in, in post-crisis of the character named Damage. I didn't know any of it. Grant Emerson, yep. And so Dr. Polaris became a character in there so as well. So that wraps up the interior. What? Woo! Yeah, <laughs> and when we get our final page, which is sort of like the preview page, and it tells you where everybody's going to be appearing, um, and it, you know, talks about Darkseid and Desaad are going to be appearing in the next Superpower series. Talks about Doctor Fate, same thing. Says that he's going to be he's in the All Star Squadron, but will be in the new Superpowers miniseries, which is kind of exciting. Talks about Doctor Light and Crisis on Infinite Earths, and so All Star Squadron. Clearly, a lot of these characters keep showing up because they keep mentioning it. You get some nice images. You see Superman number 410. I love this cover. Clark Kent's walking away. He's been fired from the Daily Planet. You see a picture in the background of Superman going, I categorically deny the story Clark Kent wrote about me in the Daily Planet. It's nothing but a pack of lies. (laughs) It's a really fun cover. Then you get a a nice Warlord cover. You get Crisis number 5. You get a great All-Star Squadron cover because all all All-Star Squadron covers are great. That's right. By definition. Yep. It's got Dr. Fate with a half helmet. You've got a, a really nice Steve Lightold Legion of Superheroes cover with Timberwolf, and you've got a nice Amethyst cover. Um, I think that's Amethyst, the ongoing series, as opposed to the miniseries. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so. Anyway, great book. Uh, that is Who's Who number six. In the books. Gonna, I was going to say in, in a nutshell, but <laughs> it's not really right. Now we're going to move right into the feedback, folks, and oh my gosh. It's a ton. <laughs> I have to stop being surprised at that. Well, it's like I can. If you guys don't know, I compile the feedback. I, I look everywhere in, on the web. I look, you know, everywhere on the web. I look in Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr and all these places where you guys leave us comments and emails, and I compile it all for Rob and I look at. This is 18 pages in a Microsoft Word document. Oh my gosh! So 
by the way, if you are going to talk about the show on social media, um, please use the hashtag FW Podcast. That's short for Firewater Podcast. So FW Podcast, that will help everyone else find it. It'll help us find it. We'll retweet it, get the word out there, and spread the word about the show. Now, speaking of which, Rob, you did something for us here. This podcast is, can be found in a new place. Isn't that right? Yes. We are now available on Stitcher Radio, which I have to credit uh, uh, eight-year-old Chad Bokelman for giving me the idea. <laughs> when we did our Fandom Stranger uh, episode, he mentioned to me, I think even on the air, that I should be on the, the show should be on Stitcher Radio because Stitcher Radio is, is basically a way to access podcasts without having to download anything. You just go on a Stitcher and it just activates it. And it's um, there's something about where like new cars that are coming off the road are, are just like come built in with uh, internet radio, and you can just get Stitcher directly through it. So now you can you can find us on Stitcher Radio. So if you have that in your car and you want to listen to us prattle on, and you have say oh I don't know like a four hour drive somewhere, uh, you can download <laughs> you can either download three episodes of Fire and Water or one Who's Who show. <laughs> you can also get Stitcher as an app for like your iPhone and stuff yes, like that. Yes, that's right. By the way, if you're looking for older episodes of the Fire and Water podcast, uh, we are having an issue with our RSS, RSS feed yeah. on iTunes. It only shows the most recent 25 episodes of the shows. Right. Uh, so if you're looking for shows beyond that, earlier shows, like maybe our first Who's Who or earlier episodes of Fire and Water, we do. You could, there's, there is a blog spot site you can go to and just grab all of them right from there. Yeah, you what's, could, what's that blog spot? Fire and water podcast.blogspot.com and you go right there and in the sidebar there's a giant banner that says episodes and it lists every episode from newest to oldest and they are all direct links to the mp3 file so every single show that we've done is downloadable from the blog yep now that blog is not the home of the show don't make any mistake that's not it's not probably the best place to leave comments because quite honestly we don't really read them there it's just used to feed to the itunes yeah basically the, the home for the shows on the web are Aquaman Shrine and Firestorm Fan. So. Right. But, yes, you can find every episode on that blog. And you can also find every episode on Firestorm Fan and Aquaman Shrine as well. Just it's a little bit easier to find them all on the Fire and Water dedicated blog. Yep. Well, speaking of feedback, let's just jump right here. We got an email. Yes, we got one from Aaron Bias, who is, in fact, alive. That's a joke between him and I. He'll understand. Um, he wrote, <laughs> who's, who, who's Who Stuff Late Comments on Episode 4. Rob and Shag just got an iPhone. And immediately began listening to the Fire and Water podcast. These Who's Who episodes are bizarrely entertaining. Thanks, Aaron. Um, Who's Who was the first DC comic I began buying regularly in the 80s. Before that, I was mostly a Marvel guy. I still like you, Aaron. In episode four, Shag rightly pointed out that Captain Adam is the inspiration for Dr. Manhattan, as the Watchmen are based on the old Charlton heroes, except that it's not actually quite true. Huh. Although the Watchmen are supposedly gloomy real-world, are, are a are supposedly a gloomy real-world group supposedly based on the 60s Charlton heroes, or in the case of most of the Minutemen, the Archie heroes, Dr. Manhattan is far more similar to Gold Key's Dr. Solar, Man of the Atom. DC never says so, but if you read Silver Age's Dr. Solar, you'll see that Solar is a nuclear physicist, he has a relationship with his steady girl that becomes more and more strained as it becomes less and less human, whereas that he's going to irrit- irradiate everyone around him and one issue becomes a giant. Check it out. Hmm. Uh, by the way, Golden Age Captain Marvel is the bomb. I agree with you there, Aaron. DC completely ruined that character, and while I like Jerry Ordway, I wouldn't line my cat box with the power of Shazam. That's oh my gosh! nasty. And then he gives us this helpful little definition. Sir Print. Sir Print. Um, sir Printed. Sir Printing. Sir Prints. Definition one, to overprint. Two, to superimpose a second negative on a previously printed image of the first negative. This podcast is fantastic. Keep it up. Aaron, the ghost who blogs. So it sounds like a serpent is more like the front image than the back image. I guess. 
I mean, I guess it would depend on how you're printing it. Maybe we shouldn't use that term. I don't know. I, I don't want to drop it. I like it too much. This <laughs> it has sort of become uh, part of our staple of exactly. things, isn't it? Exactly. Next email comes from Sean Engel. He just did a Who's Who marathon. He, he sat down Poor and blasted bastard. through all of What did you say? Poor bastard. <laughs> um, he says that our podcast gives more due to Crazy Quilt than any issue of Boys Command- Boy Commandos or Batman ever did. <laughs> Brings back more memories of going over to my grandparents' house and rifling through my cousin's comic books. Back then, I read dozens of Bronze Age Superman, Justice League, Batman, and Flash comics. But with one group of comics I remember the most were Who's Who. In fact, the fact that DC has this vast library of characters and has devoted this much time and effort to collecting them blew my teenaged um, mind. Apparently, that is... that. Quote, teenaged is copyright Steve Lacey and Andrew Leyland, 2012, all rights reserved. I have no idea what that means. I know who Andrew Leyland is from, um, he's another fellow podcaster uh, that oh, we know, okay. but uh, and I've done a couple with him, but I don't get the teenage joke. But anyway, uh, when he, hear, he loves to hear us cover these issues. So uh, he, he came across all five episodes and he listened to them all in one weekend. Oh. He said, um, hold on, he said, I powered through all five issues near, in nearly one listening. It's good to have a job that allows you to listen to podcasts while you work. Thankfully, that amount of Shag's voice did not cause internal hemorrhaging, dizziness, or the desire to drink copious amounts of grain alcohol to dull the senses. For you. <laughs> However, I must issue a Kevin Spacey as Lex Luthor level of wrong. I love that. To Shag in his estimation of Joe Staten's artwork being poor on the Guy Gardner solo series. In my opinion, the cartoony style that Staten drew the characters was perfect for a very offbeat adventures of the one true Green Lantern. But I don't hold it against you, and I don't enjoy. I don't hold it against you that you don't enjoy his work in a series. However, I do hope that Rob holds it against you. You know, the nice, this is Shaggy. The nice thing about opinions is everyone's entitled to one. Unfortunately, Sean's is wrong. So, anyway, he's enjoying the show. He appreciates it. And he says maybe he'll listen to the regular Fire and Water someday. And he's also a podcaster himself. He, he is, calls himself the Amateur Guy Gardner Apologist and hosts a podcast called Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. And maybe we'll listen to that one day. <laughs> I want to cover this next one from Justin. Justin and I went back and forth about the Legion of Substitute Heroes. He and I had some some banter about colorful chlorophyll kid, and uh, he actually wrote one letter to us about our regular Fire and Water podcast. He goes, "Wait, was that a chlorophyll kid shout out in episode thirty five? My mind has been blown." So apparently, that's that easy, with Justin. So. <laughs> we also got we got another email from him too. Uh, where he had some bullet points. He said, I love your use of blatant lies as bait for creator feedback. This should definitely become an ongoing feature. We forgot to do that this time. I, I forgot <laughs> you, to, you forgot I to, forgot to do, that. do it. I didn't. I, yeah, I guess, you know, I don't know. It should be something like, uh, you know, Keith Geffen's the all-time home run champion or something like that. Um, Color Kid's entry was definitely a bit sparse. His entry in Who's Who and the Legion Superheroes was half the size, but it did mention that he once changed the kryptonite clouds, rounding the earth from green to blue. I want to see a follow-up story where Bizarro drops dead after entering Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> I know we're only five issues into the series, but I think Composite Superman may win the award for greatest discrepancy between quality of art and quality of character. I'm glad he's on board with us in that realm, because I felt the same way. Now, this um, next one's directed at me. There you go. Shag, in light of your feelings about the Creeper, you may be dismayed to know that after Steve Detko left DC, he created an, another character very similar to the Creeper. The name of this new character is Shag. <laughs> and I went out there and checked it out. He, he gave me a link. Is Shag and the Uglies. Insert joke here, by the way, <laughs> folks. Um, Redundant. Right. Thank you. And near as, like, one, one guy did an analysis of the comic. It showed several panels. Near as he can figure what it really was was a creeper story that DC didn't pick up, and he just changed some of the art. Because <laughs> the character 
looks just like the creeper guys. I mean, he's doing acrobatic moves. He's got these weird things coming off his shoulders, like you know, like creeper's outfit. I mean, it's it's the creeper. It's weird. Um, this next one's directed to you, buddy. Yeah, he said the instant that Rob started talking about the crime doctor, I knew what he was going to say. I haven't noticed that dot 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 feature dot 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 before, but now I can't escape it. I also found it funny that the crime doctor is described as a subpar athlete and hand-to-hand combatant right next to the illustration of him slashing Batman's shoulder. Bruce must have been having an off day. Thanks again. I can't wait for volume six. All the best, Justin. By, by the way, Justin gave us a pronunciation guide of his name, which unfortunately he put at the end of the letter, so when I said his name a second ago, I said it wrong. <laughs> it's Fredine, actually. It's Justin Fredine. Always uh, lead off with the pronunciation, Justin. Right. Always. So that way we get into the front, guys. <laughs> Uh, Mike Gillis followed up here on a comment that Rob had said about prisons in DCU. <laughs> Why don't you do this one? On the last episode, Rob brought up the prison industry in the DC Universe and speculated that it would be even bigger business than in the real world. Certainly it would cost a lot more money to keep someone like Lex Luthor in jail, given that you essentially have to outsmart him. And you need to be able to house people who can simply punch through a standard prison wall or fly over a wall. But I have to wonder what sort of turnaround there is, in war- in, is for wardens in the DCU. Jail breaks in the real world are really rare. But in this universe, criminals have a 100% escape rate. <laughs> Eventually, every single supervillain is going to either break out of jail or have other villains break them out. Do these wardens lose their job over this sort of thing? Would the government or the general populace be more understanding of their failure to keep these guys in jail, given that nobody's able to do it? Thanks for the podcast, guys. Love the show. It's more, it's more like the fiscal cliff, where everyone looks around going, why can't people fix this? Yeah. And, and then, you know, there's other people off who just apparently can't fix this. Yes. So. Yeah, and so. Mike always sends very heady questions into the show. Yes. He also gave some support on Facebook, yes. so we appreciate that. Uh, we got an email from Mike Voiles, uh, as in Mike's Amazing World of Comics. So uh, always, always great name. to hear from him. Praise be his name. God, seriously, if you don't know Mike's Amazing World of Comics, go out there. It is like the greatest database of comic book information. It's astonishing. Think so. of how much stuff we get wrong in an average show, and that's with Mike's assistance. <laughs> He writes, hi guys, good show as usual. I'm happy there wasn't a two-month wait between episodes this time. Sorry. We're trying, we're trying. Uh, congratulations on the Simonson feedback. I knew about the Captain Fear story and was going to point it out for you. Good stuff. Uh, a few notes on episode five. Cinnamon, she did get her own five-issue miniseries in 2003 entitled El Ciclo. I have to find that. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Uh, Claw the Unconquered, beside his own series, he had a couple of backup stories in Warlord that came out just a couple of years before Who's Who. There was also a Claw-Red Sonya crossover a couple years back. I remember that, yeah. There's the crossover that nobody demanded. No. <laughs> Congo Bill. Now, this is interesting. Um, in Who's Who, la- this is me talking, in last issue of Who's Who that we did, it said Congo Bill first appeared in Action Comics number one, and I speculated that that's probably the only reason that he continued to be popular we over the years. We both did. We goofed on this one. Yeah, that we figured that's the only reason he stayed popular is people stumbled across it from Action Comics number one. Turns out that that was an error. Uh, a letter, there was a letter in a later issue of Who's Who, that, and this is from Mike, that tried to correct the error. But DC got that wrong again in the reply. His actual first appearance was in More Fun Comics number 56. His strip ran from More Fun 56 to 67, then he moved to Action Comics beginning in number 37. So there you go. Uh, and someone else will point out, later, point out later on that apparently he got his own movie serial, too. He did. Which is just wild. Now, Cyclotron, which was another amazing Jerry Ordway drawing, we talked about how he was, he was not a Golden Age character, but you know, he seemed so Golden Age that they did a great job. Well, it turns out that mm, that's not exactly true. Roy Thomas may have created the Cyclotron identity, 
but the character the character was of Terry Curtis was actually a Golden Age character. He first appeared in Action Comics number 21 as an atomic scientist who was kidnapped by the Ultra Humanite in the body of actress Dolores Winters. Now, who wouldn't want to be kidnapped by Dolores That's Winters? That's a great Just, 40s name, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, the All-Star Squadron was a continuation of that, albeit 40 years later. Keep up the good work. And again, Mike's Amazing World of Comics. You can find that at mikesamazingworld.com. We got a uh, we got an, a comment from someone whose identity is known as Mike Dixie Wrecked. <laughs> oh, I get oh, it now. Oh. Now that I say it out loud. Say it aloud. That's all. Oh, Tracy just looked awful. at me and she, she figured it out. Oh, God. Very clever. It's Dixie, like Dixieland. Ugh. Yeah, that's what it is. I guess he must also send us emails under like the name Dick Hurts and stuff like that. Anyway, another great episode. I lo- I feel so- I feel dirty it's, that I said it's that. It's so tainted now. Like it it's com- is the whole yeah. show. Oh, God. I love that you guys are pointing me towards comics that I missed out on. Last month I bought Camelot three thousand, which was amazing, by the way. Yes, it is. After listening to episode five, I immediately went on eBay and bought the full twelve issue run of Claw the Unconquered. Now we can't be responsible for that. Uh, actually, I think we are to some extent. Well, I'm just saying I'm not taking any responsibility for that. Can't wait for next month. Dr. Favre is my first and favorite superpowers action figure way back when. So, Good thank, call. You, uh, thank you, my, as I'm calling you. We'll just call him Dixie. Uh, then we got a comment over on Firestorm Fan from our buddy Siskoid. Uh, you ought you to check out his site, Siskoid's blog at Geekery. He's actually running a feature nowadays called Who's This? And it's all uh, Who's Who entries. And uh, I like to think idea. that. I like to think we're responsible for the, the, him him starting this. So, even though he's been a long time Who's Who fan, I think we gave him the oomph to, to finally do it. So, anyway, yeah, if those wrote, two morons can do it, <laughs> you were looking at the cover with you guys, and uh, it's the first time I noticed the Citadel Guard has two arms. What's up with that? Chronos, uh, time travel only became his thing, I think, in the Power of the Atom a couple years after this, where he changed his costume for something a little less garish. Cinnamon, he says, Brent Anderson's girls look so sad. His Batgirl and Catwoman have the same expression. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Cersei, he says, I love her b- base of operations, the Bermuda Triangle. Claw, yeah, he acknowledges that Giffen drew that. Uh, he included two unpublished stories that uh, appeared in com- Cancelled Comics Cavalcade. And it, he did try to stand up for Composite Superman. He says that he wrote an entry uh, on his blog under the Reign of Superman entry. And he says he tried to explain it as much as possible. And he also corrects this thing about Congo Bill. Yeah. And, uh, he was nice enough to tell us that he was reaching the hour mark and had to go take a pee. And he came back with more comments. So, uh, thanks for that. Yeah. Talks about Kong Gorilla. He says in the Serpent there, uh, he's, he looks more like Monsignor Mala. So, and then he gets on our case about the whole Serpent thing as well. It really says, should be subprint. I guess he's right. It really should He says, be. since the image is really under the character, shouldn't it be subprint? So, hmm, maybe something to talk about. Uh... <laughs> I like the construct. Wireless internet is alive! <laughs> says, the reason he's so silly is that the glow around his eyes looks like beautiful eyelashes. I think that's what it is, now that he says it. I can see yeah. what he's talking about. He mentions the, uh, the, something we did not mention, that the controllers also form the Dark Stars. We should have mentioned that. That's a good point. Uh, talks about Copperhead, and uh, he did have a superhero physique in his first Brave and the Bold appearance. But yeah, he agrees with us. He, he prefers Copperhead as the thin, thin and skinny kind of version. Uh, apparently he hates the council in all caps, in all caps, not because they look like they came out of a Crayola box because they're really a combination of two other entities, the gang, which is why they all had G's in their chest and matrix prime. Uh, that's all three ideas that all three ideas had entries is ridiculous to me. (laughs) I left that in the council or just gang plus matrix prime. Sorry. Brings out the rage. (laughs) 
he corrected something I said. I mentioned Crazy Quilt was colorblind, which isn't correct. Uh, he can only see bright, vivid colors. I was thinking of Rainbow Raider, probably. Uh, so, apparently his mind, and his fashion sense, cracked under the strain. <laughs> uh, he also reappeared in the Batman Brave and the Bull cartoon. And uh, he points out that, yes, Steve Ditko did do some drawings in Who's Who. He drew Shade the Changing Man and Starman 2, and the question. So, and then he got on Rob's case about the crime doctor and his smock, and Rob pointing that out. Ugh. Um, he goes on here to say that Volume 6 is probably his favorite issue of Who's Who for sentimental reasons. Uh, so, there you go. That's the issue we just covered. I, I can't validate that for you, Siskoid. It's not a bad issue, but I don't know. Uh, he also gave us some support over on Twitter. Uh, that's right. And we got an email from uh, little Russell Burbage of Disappointment, Kentucky. And he said, it's only so much fun listening to this podcast, because while I listen, I find myself agreeing with Rob uh, about something. Then the very next character, I'll agree with Shag against Rob. Love, ah. love the Legion. And then I'll agree with Rob again. It's like I'm the composite Rob Shag or something. <laughs> but without the stupid costume, and I don't even have any alien named Zan in my life. Anywho, I have to say, I was disappointed that Rob knows almost no Legion history. Because he uh-huh. shares so many other similar likes and dislikes. It seems sad somehow that Rob doesn't appreciate the Legion goodness. However, it was awesome to hear Shag school Rob on Legion lore. You tell him, Shag. You tell him, Shag, lad. It seems, <laughs> it seems like my favorites are also Shags. Rock Crin is definitely one of my all-time favorite characters. Um, he wrote, I can never tell if Cinnamon is wearing a white suit or a black suit. It looks like white on the cover, but black on the profile. I can never get past the odd aching of her suit. I, like Chag, like that she and Nighthawk ended up being earlier versions of Shara and Katar. Take that, Kelly. The best Creeper story I've ever read was the one of the first, the end of the Bat Murderer storyline where he guest stars in Detective. I've not liked him really in any other story. Uh, Russell also supported us on Facebook. He left this Facebook comment. I do love it. What I don't have the time to listen to it tonight. Damn you, Shagsworth, for tempting me while I was busy. I like here where he goes, uh, he goes, this issue, uh, I was definitely in your camp, Mr. Matthews. Yeah. And then uh, finally, hey, just ever being mentioned in the Who's Who V podcast, see little comments on his Colossal Boy pick. Coincidence? Or the machinations of little Russell Burbage of Normal, Illinois? You decide. Actually, I think that was all me. Uh, I, I did a thing on Twitter or Facebook where I actually, you know, whatever you do, where you connect with the person. And I mentioned, hey, hey, we talk about, you know, Steve Lytle's Colossal Boy. And then two days later, he posts it on, on his Facebook. So, I, you know, maybe, maybe Russell did something. I don't know. But I, I think our Who's Who definitely uh, probably prodded him to put that Colossal Boy pick up. Right. And then Siskoid, Siskoid came back with another comment responding to Russell's comment about my lack of love for Firestorm. I mean, uh, the Legion. <laughs> Either. There. And uh, he said, at Russell, I think it would be a very different story if the Legion had a real underwater character. Then Rob would be all over it. <laughs> You know, I think he's got a good point. I just, there was something, there was just, I don't know. It just didn't grab me as a kid, and it never did, so. You know what they should do? You know who should be in the Legion? Aqua Lad. Aqua, Aqua, Aqua Lass or Aqua Lad or something. Yeah. yeah. Move Garth, you know, because Garth doesn't exist in New 52 yet, does he? Nope. Well, uh, he's coming. Oh, he is? He's coming. They, they oh, mentioned God. him in the new issue. Oh, that's true, they did, didn't they? Yeah. But I was saying they could, uh, they could put him up there in uh, the Legion, yeah. you know? Okay. Um... We got a lot of comments on this from Diablo everybody. with our buddy Diablo Fink. I'm just going to kind of breeze through them here. Uh, you can read these out on Firestorm Fam. He he sort of agrees that Dick Giordano really futs the, the inking on this. Um, basically, was saying that you know he didn't do the kind of inking job he could. Um, wow, there's a partial equivalency to Vinnie Coletta here. Wow, that's, that's a that's a dig. Oof, um, that just put that just stopped me dead in my tracks just now. 
talks about how Killer Croc was one of his favorite Batman villains. Rob had mentioned when uh, this is Jagno. Rob had mentioned that there was a picture of Killer Croc as a teenager, and he looked really kind of off, you know, uh, odd. And uh, Rob felt sorry for him. Yeah, Yeah, Rob felt sad for him. Well, it says in here there was an issue where um, he got beaten by with a belt buckle by a racist cop. So um, that would have really upset you even more, probably. So Dan Jurgens did some outstanding early artwork on this character. Um, Talked about uh, B B and C level characters and and goes on about uh, Kronos and kind of explains what happened to him there. And he mentions here that um, Kronos' facial features were apparently based on Richard Nixon's. And he modeled Hal Jordan on Paul Newman. That I knew. I knew. I didn't know the Nixon thing, but I knew the Paul I Newman thing. Did know that? Did not know that. He gave us some links to some stuff they they, they posted on his own sites about like Claw the Unconquered. Uh, he talks about uh, he didn't. He, he agreed with you. He didn't think Colossal Boy was nearly colossal, colossal. enough. <laughs> I like this. He said, "I think I've said Dominators when I make controllers like a lot for a very long time." <laughs> so I guess you, know, you got those two confused. So <laughs> let's see. He has some ideas for a really cool, like, 1950s you know, superhero comic with, like, Commander Steel and King Faraday and things like that. I think if you read New Frontier, you're going to kind of get that sense for that. That's kind of what that was. You pull all the 1950s characters together with some of the 60s characters. So talks a little more about – talks about some of the other characters that appeared. Uh, talks about Count Vertigo and uh, Trevor Von Eden's artwork and sort of, like, the – the back and forth between Trevor Von Eden and Tony Isabella about who created Black Lightning. Apparently there's a little bit of a, a dust-up there. And uh, you had talked quite a bit about the Whatever Happened to Crimson Adventure story. I did. I in the last story. one. And there's a lot of discussion about that here. Um, in fact, I'm going to jump a bit ahead where we talk about Crimson Avenger. And Luke was asking you about it. Basically wanted to know more about this Crimson Avenger thing. And you, you directed him to it. And Michael Bailey reminded me, because I, I kept saying I thought Crimson Avenger was the first costume hero, and I was trying to remember the details on it. Michael Bailey helped me remember. What happened was Crimson Avenger did predate Batman, but he was after Superman. Right. But in post-crisis continuity, Superman didn't come around until the modern age. Right. So then post-crisis continuity, Crimson Avenger did become the first masked man. So I was right. In, some, in post-crisis continuity, he was the first masked man. However, Michael also reminded me. He reminded me of that. And then he reminded me that in a Golden Age Seeker Files issue, Crimson Adventure actually had a like a uh, whatever you call that, like a a dream of the future, okay. and he saw Superman's death, and that was what he was avenging. Hmm. So okay. kind of a twisty, windy road to get there. But yeah. So and uh, Luke responded. He was. All this was back and forth with Luke, here, you know, learning, and he says, "Wow, the Fire and Water podcast community is the best." So, I agree. <laughs> I do too. You guys are amazing. So, um, well, I've, I've, how far uh, does Frank, Frank I have, go? Here? He goes down to V. I have to mention this last one though. He says, "My what? returning to the podcast equals Chinese democracy." The two Jakes that uh, that killed me. Just in terms of <laughs> very long times in between sequels. Well, definitely, definitely go out, folks, and. Um, Go out to Firestorm Fan. You can read all of Frank's comments. They're all worthwhile. It just would take us quite a while to We're go through them. compiling them in a book. He's a very prolific writer. So, uh, Let's see. Yes, Siskoi comes back and does confirm that uh, Ditko did the stalker and the question as well as Shade. Caffeinated Joe was very excited. He gave us some support on Twitter and Tumblr and on the Aquaman site. Thank Thanks, you, Jack. He's one of your favorite people I know. Yep. Uh, we got a comment on the Aquaman trend from Sphinx Magoo, which luckily isn't anything dirty when you say it out loud. Uh, one quick note for David Clinton, Coronos. I looked online to remind myself of what the image looked like, but David Clinton's face appearance is altered anyway. 
David Clinton's face was revealed. It talks about that he's based on President Nixon, as we covered. One more note, this one on Composite Superman. I love Composite Superman. He's such a goofy character. You are that guy. Such a ridiculous Thanks. appearance, and I think he, but I think he's great. Even though Amazo appeared first, Composite Superman is one of those all-in-one villains that featured the powers of all the characters of a superhero team. So. They call him Composite Legion. You, you go, you, yeah, exactly. You go with that. Go with that. Um... <laughs> I love this next bit. This came, makes me happy. But then he came back on the shrine again, if I may. I'd like to add in more comments about the much maligned calculator and calendar man. Now, for those of you who remember from previous episodes, th- these characters keep coming up. People, I cannot believe we're, yeah. Because <laughs> Rob apparently hates these characters. I don't hate them. They're and, just... I, and I love them. And I think they're worth talking about every episode. <laughs> every episode. Now, obviously, I liked Calendar Man enough to dig up the Neil Sedaka song and add it to the previous episode. So <laughs> that's true. Um, he talks talk about, about he him talks anymore. about the. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just don't want to talk about him anymore. He talks about him from an artistic point of view. Yes. You really? We're not reading this. I, go go ahead. I can't do All it. Right. Imagine, if you will, Batman of the late 70s art-wise. Batman was in a comfortable place. Neil Adams was no longer doing the new stories. I love Irv the Novik- scene he sets here. What did you say? I love the scene he sets here. Irvig Novik, Irv Novik was the main artist on many of the stories, which may, may be an occasional film by Jose Garcia Lopez. It should say praise be his name, by the way. Yes, it should. Jim Aparo was on Brave and the Bull, but that series was, just, was in its own weird little world. Or its own little world. Now, in the case of Calendar Man, the, that issue of Detective Comics, where Calendar Man's on the cover, that was the first time I found out about Marshall Rogers. Yes, that Marshall Rogers. His art was dynamic and very designy, and such a change from Novick's style that my young head exploded. When I saw his work on the famous Engelhart run, I already knew him from the work on that calculator story. His take on the calculator was fun and visually exciting, even though I remember how his motif didn't make sense to me. Although years later, Prometheus borrowed some of the calendar's calculator, I'm sorry, calculator shtick of being able to block a hero from defeating him. Now take all that visual excitement buzz and apply it to Walt Simonson's take on Calendar Man. It was so great finding someone, something so visually exciting, so different, so attractive to a kid who loved the great artwork. And that premise of this B or C list characters doesn't matter anymore. And all I cared about was seeing more of this great stuff sometime again in the future. So, I just want to get that out there. I know Rob sounded pretty skeptical about Calendar Man and Calculator, but as an art dude, I hope he might understand just a bit better now. And his, <sighs> silent, and his silence means no. <laughs> it's just, it's just, I don't want to talk about it. All right. We heard from our buddy called The Toy Room, who now I have a name to tie to it. I should have picked up on this before. It's Anthony Durso. So, uh, Anthony, um, who's, by the way, a previous uh, Yellow Dot Award winner. Yes. He mentions that Cinnamon appeared in the DC Western part of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Good point. He is not a big Don Heck superhero fan either. Uh, In fact, when he took over the Flash is when he dropped the book. Let's see. Uh, Then he takes a dig at me. Thanks. He says, Colonel Computron, I'm surprised you never see them team up with Bug and Bite to battle Flash <laughs> and Firestorm. Thanks so much. That's embarrassing enough as it is. Uh, he doesn't understand why Color Kid got a full-page entry. Let's talk about a space filler. I think they were trying to not get any Ds in that issue is probably what it was. He is also uh, a sick, twisted, uh, immoral fan of Composite Superman. I don't get this. I you don't, guys, yeah. all of you fans of Composite Superman, please seek help. Seriously. It's, it's not good. Anyway, he, talks, he also talks a little about Congo Bill and Congorilla. He gives us, uh, he mentions that he had, did have the movie serial. That's crazy. I had no idea. Let's see. He did, we failed to mention Cosmic Boy's 70s costume where he was showing as much skin as Saturn Girl. I always thought it was supposed to be pink. I didn't know he was showing that much skin. Let's see. He corrects my crazy quilt thing. Talks about the Creeper. 
and gives us some shout out on Twitter. Yes, he was very happy about being a Yellow Dot Award winner. So, Earth Two, Earth Two, Chris, our other Yellow Dot winner. Yes, he says thanks, guys. Thanks for the Yellow Dot Award. I'm very honored. I'm a bit late on commenting this time. All I have to add is that it's on Colonel Future. He was created as an homage to classic sci-fi comic author Edmund Hamilton and even shares his name. Hamilton created the pulp hero Captain Future and also wrote for DC for years, creating many memorable stories and characters, including the composite Superman. Oh, God. In post-crisis continuity, Superman supporting character Professor Emil Hamilton was created in homage to this author. Okay, I'd like to make one thing clear, dear listeners, and I'm very serious when I say this. I'm perfectly fine if Calculator Man and Calculator become reoccurring themes in the listener feedback. I will not be pleased if Composite Superman becomes a reoccurring feature of this show. (laughs) The character is just so ridiculous. It really bothers me. Uh, Next up, uh, I mentioned earlier Luke Dobb. I should have said uh, he dastardly creative Luke Dobb and also his freakishly stretchy cheeks if you see him on Facebook. That is is very creepy. He's doing the poster for Dead Alive on that. Yeah, it's, uh, he really needs to change his profile picture. Anyway, he gave us some very nice words uh, about our podcast. And he said he, he liked hearing which comic book images haunted us as children. Uh, it fascinates me to consider the way artwork has shaped our imaginations and psyche. So, and then it, we had that conversation about Crimson Avenger. Michael Bailey, uh, over on his fight, Fortress of Baileytude, is currently running a series you should check out. It's called Who's Who Classic, where they also re-show some of the old Who's Who entries in related to Superman. It's a good thing to check out. He also uh, told us about the Ed- Edward Hamilton thing with Colonel Future. Very cool. Then we heard from uh, J. David Weeder. Now, I'm making a bit of an assumption here, folks. We heard from J. David Weeder, and then there's another guy who posts some stuff named Dave Weeder. I'm going to assume they're the same person. If you guys are not the same people, please let me know. J. David Weeder gave us a shout-out on Facebook, and Dave Weeder gave us a shout-out on his Tumblr, which is Dave's Amazing World of Comics, uh, when he did an entry about Zatanna. So we appreciate that. Yes, Thank you, Anna. Yes, we appreciate that. And a shout-out on Twitter. And uh, once again, we heard about Edward Hamilton, this time from Robert Louis Stubbs, uh, also over on Facebook. And he went on to mention that there were three other associates that Captain Future had, Grag the Metal Robot, Otho the Synthetic Man, and Simon Wright the Living Brain. So, uh, Chad Bokelman, a uh, little four-year-old Chad Bokelman, put a comment up on Facebook. He said, I suppose there is a downside to listening to everything you guys put out immediately, meaning I have to wait a full week for the next show. I imagine he got his parents to type that for him. He, his uh, Ragman blog, he gave us a shout-out when he did the Ragman Who's Who entry, and he gave us a shout-out on Twitter under LanternCast. Thank you for that. Heard from our buddy Luke Giaconetti, uh over on Google Plus, of all places. Uh, that would be Luke's own personal social network, because um, he's the only one using it right now. <laughs> and uh, he was doing all through November War Comics Month, and he sort of touches on the war-related entries we covered last issue, which included, like, um, Creature Commandos and things like that, and um, the Haywood Clan and stuff like that. So that was nice. He also gives a shout-out on Twitter. Thank you. Oscar Olade gave us support over on Facebook and Plus. Much appreciated. Alexander Adrock. Uh, I like he put this on Twitter. Uh, he said, I wonder if there are any frustrated Zatanna fans <laughs> waiting for each episode. <laughs> you got a while to wait, boys. I mean, we're, we're only a quarter of the way through. He also gave us some support on Twitter, and then uh, we had a little conversation over on Facebook where uh, he said, how dare you dismiss the Creeper? That's okay. I'm sure he'll laugh it off. And I was trying to be polite, basically saying I wasn't dismissing him. I just didn't like him. <laughs> and he said he was kidding. Dicko's, he likes Dicko, um, but that's not one of his favorites either. A.K.A. Sunshine Superman, uh, goes by FunkyFoo42 on Twitter. Talked about the crime syndicate. Uh, our buddy Professor Allen, uh, Allen Middleton over on Twitter. I love this gave one. Us 
<laughs> Great new episode of Who's Who, considering Firestorm fan read, read the wrong issue. Command Shrine did no research at all. <laughs> Good point. Uh, Gregor Rujo of Twitter uh, said he thinks Ultron, because I had said uh, Computer was the DC version of Ultron, and he's saying it's sort of the other way around. He thinks Ultron is Marvel's version of Computer because he thinks Computer came first. Interesting. Uh, Philemon, we had talked about the zero issues of the New 52 comics had the Who's Who entries in the back. And Philemon made a good point because the back matter in the zero issues are not real Who's Who's entries. They don't use the yellow dots. That's, I'm sorry. You get the yellow dot award this month for that one. He's getting it? All right. Yes. There we go. Yes. You, you are the yellow dot yeah, award winner. That comment, winner, I, just, I want that on a T-shirt or something. <laughs> Love that. Um, Todd Hoover gave us some support on, on Twitter. Said he's enjoying hearing the Who's. He's new to DC, and he's enjoying hearing the history of the DC characters. D uh, jumped out there and mentioned uh, about um, Congo Bills, the correction on Congo Bill as well, and he said that the DC, the correction was made in Who's Who 26. I'm astonished that so many people read the letters page of Who's Who number 26 that know this. You guys are amazing. They're really on it. Yep. Uh, Hector Negrete chimed in also to talk about Surprint. He said it's not really a Surprint, it's a watermark. Watermark. I'm sorry. I apologize to all of you. <laughs> Uh, Andy Capellish, because <laughs> we, we mentioned that we were joking around about um, what is it called, Creeper, and the and the and the superpowers action figure that never got made, and that apparently really got Andy Capellish pretty excited. <laughs> he created, he created his own hashtag. Go ahead. Hashtag suction cup tentacles. I love that. And then the other and one, hashtag Doctor Boner. Someone named Jerzak, I'm not even sure who Jerzak is, but he wrote, holy shit, I just found the nerdiest podcast. <laughs> Who's who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. So thank you for that, Jerzak. Appreciate that. Crack me up. Uh, got some support from Keith G. Baker on Facebook and Twitter. Nathan Archer on Facebook and Tumblr. Mr. Perturb, also Randy, known as Randy Caldwell, over on Tumblr, Google Support, and Twitter. He is so socially connected, it's amazing. We got Facebook on, support on, from Facebook over by some of our buddies, Sean Corey, Christopher J. Warden, Carlos Mucha, David Dixon, Greg Barr, Tim Wallace, Kevin Culp, Sean Myers, Lee Novak, Brian Miller, who, by the way, is the colorist on Firestorm, Vicky Gatanis, Daniel Cynical Adams, John Goodwin, and Roger Preeb. And then we got some real motion on Tumblr this last Yes, week. yeah. A lot of folks. Um, Red Dart 6, who's Red Dart's Guide to America. Fusionautics, which is Fish Fingers and Custard, which is a Doctor Who reference. That oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Delanor, Bang Bang, You're Dead. Adam Strambelli, which is Adam Strambelli's blog. Rook 5000502, which is up till now. FK Jason, who's the uh, FKA podcast, guys. We've heard, of him. We've heard from him before. Frostbite 883, which is It's Ice Time. I can't even say this. I'm just going to say uh, what it is. He goes, it, his blog's called Baby Iron Ronnie. <laughs> Count Vertigo, Juan Salvo, and Red The. So thank you, guys. We really appreciate that. Yeah, over on uh, Twitter, we got uh, support from Span at GL875. Barry Reese at Barry Reese Pulp. Corey Hodgden at Higher Rock. Thank you, Corey. Joey Garza at JGarza3. Kyle Benning at Kyle Benning. Oberon Ivy Wasteoid at MythMakingETZ. Paul Bowler at Paul Bowler. Mr. Oddly at Mr. Oddly, FK Podcast. Nerd Knight Nola at Nerd Knight Nola. Jeff Hylton Simmons at Jeffrey Simmons. Emirate Otterstar at Champ Superstar. <laughs> I just got that when you said it out loud. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Uh, Joe Slab at Jay Slab 425 uh, the 
first step is admitting you have a problem. Fantastiverse <laughs> at Fantastiverse. Matt Centauri Griffith at Photocub. Speedforce at Speedforce.org. There it is, folks. Is the oh. whole bang? I think we just finished hour seven of this podcast. Oh my lord, I'm exhausted. You guys are amazing. You, seriously, we have. Uh, you guys are the greatest collection of podcast listening community ever. So, um, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. This has been a hoot. Uh, this was Who's Who number six, folks. Next up is issue number seven. Looking forward to that one. I haven't even peeked at it yet. I want to be surprised who the main character is. Elongated man. Ooh, is it really? Yes. Awesome. Okay. So there it is. Another letter down. D. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess there's probably a couple. Well, of D's. no, there's a couple more D's to go. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, as usual, you can find my blog Aquamintrine at Aquamintrine.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. What about Firestorm Fan, Chag? You can find Firestorm Fan at FirestormFan.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, and Tumblr. And where can they find the Tumblr for this show again? Fire, uh, Fire and Water Going out there, folks, uh, you will find, like I said, probably about 10 or so of the entries from this issue of Who's Who. You're definitely going to see Dial H for Hero. I can promise you that. And uh, Dr. Fate. And maybe, uh, you know, I don't know who else. We'll have to figure it out. All right, boys. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll be back ASAP with another 17-hour episode of Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. And if you're still listening this far, you are a winner. You are a winner, sir or (laughs) ma'am. Bye. Bye. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick and Arisia and Woody Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. Oh, here we go. Really looking forward to getting this guy. This guy is really cool. The composite Superman. That is amazing right there.